Welcome back to the Science Fiction Film Podcast by LSG Media. I'm your host, Dean. I'm Matthew. And on this week's episode, we bring you Mulholland Drive from 2001, directed by David Lynch. I got to tell you, Mulholland Drive starts off like probably the best porn of all time. And then <laughs> With it jitterbug dancing. It, and then it just kind of doesn't. Like the best. It starts off with like the best porn you're ever going to want to watch. Cute, blonde, plucky girl, dark haired, sultry woman hiding in your house in your shower and you get there. Oh, <laughs> I mean, Jesus Christ. But no, it's not it's that way perfect. at all, is it? <laughs> it uh, not, the way it plays out, I would say uh, I would say not. I mean, maybe it's the most bummer of all porns ever made. Yeah. Uh, this is an it, argument to be had. I, I mean, it gets a little... A, Gets a little sad at the end when she's just slapping the shit out of her puss, trying to feel anything. <laughs> it's pretty it's fucking sad. brutal. I gotta say, that's a it's a low point in life when you're furiously masturbating and crying, just trying to feel anything, just pounding away anything on your than, mound, just hoping to connect, just slapping, just can't slapping get, that mound. You'll never get oh, it back. Jesus. You'll never get the love back. It's too bad, man. Ah, uh, it's brutal, brutal. Um, have Boy, you seen this before? Lucky movie. Have you seen this before? No, I've never seen Mulholland Drive until now. So what'd you think? I, I'll admit, for the first half of the movie, there was a point probably around halfway through, maybe a little beyond that, where I was like, I don't know. Like, I, I was enjoying aspects of it. I, I have a weird, I, this is a good time to talk about it. Like, I have a weird relationship with David Lynch movies, because I oh. used to consider myself a very big David Lynch fan. I was all about him. Uh, and that's kind of started to change over the past, I would say, three or four years a little bit. Um, and I was starting to get that feeling of like, I, I don't know about this. I'm not sure if this is working for me. But I'll admit the last – it's actually the last 30 minutes that really kind of saved it for me in a way. That that made it feel worth it, made it feel like ah, there really is – it's all coming together. There's 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 – I, don't know, I hesitate to use the word meaning because that's, to be honest, I think that's something that David Lynch doesn't give a shit about <laughs> is meaning in his movies. It's more about capturing a feeling um, more so. But I, I, it just made, it came to a place of coherence and understanding, at least for me, and by the end of the movie, that made me appreciate it more. I, def- I did enjoy this movie a good bit, but I'll, I struggled with it early on. Um, but you know, I guess this is really only the second David Lynch movie we've covered. Let's uh, take a look covered, at his filmography here. Yeah, uh, we've da, covered da, da, da. Dune, <clears throat> and do. that, to be honest, is the least David Lynchy David Lynch movie. Dune, like, like that's his one big studio <laughs> movie. It's the only. I'm pretty sure it's the only one. I could be wrong on this. That he uh, directed that was an adaptation of a, a book or anything like that. He doesn't do adaptations. He writes his own shit. Um, that's a very non-David Lynch of of a David Lynch movie. Um, so let's see. What have you seen by him? Have you seen – let's just go right to Eraserhead. Very recently. Yeah, Eraserhead I have seen, and that is honestly probably still my favorite. I really, really like Eraserhead. And that was also my first <clears throat> David Lynch movie. So maybe that's a little bit of bias, nostalgia, but I, I've seen that one a lot. I've probably got a solid 10, 12 viewings of that movie under my belt, and I, I really like it. Uh, Dune, uh, Elephant Man. Elephant Man I like. I've seen that, yep. yep. Dune, not so good. Blue Velvet. <laughs> Love Blue Velvet. Think yep. Blue Velvet's excellent. My first exposure was Wild at Heart. 
Love that movie. Fucking movie Love blew my mind. Oh, yeah, dude. My, that, fr- that, my friend Mike and I in Florida, man, we fucking watched the shit out of that movie. That movie's great. I thought, yeah. That's honestly probably another one of the crash, happier. Another car crash movie, right? Dude, he loves that. I can't he wait to get into it. He fucking loves it. I can't wait to get into the tropes of Lynch's shit, the shit that he's always, he has in like every fucking movie. He has some, a couple of weird things that show up in all of his shit. Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. So Twin Peaks, actually, that's an that's a interesting thing because that's kind of the, one of the beginnings of my... And I don't know how I feel about David Lynch. So season one and season two of, of Twin Peaks, I love. I, I, I unequivocally There's only six episodes, love. right? Of, of what? Right. Of Twin Peaks? Yeah. No. There's a lot more than that. Um, the, the first oh, no, no, no. Yeah, season, you're right. I'm an idiot. I'm, I'm just seeing six. I was like- Oh, that's weird. It's funny. I'm looking at six Twin Peaks. It says six episodes he directed, but obviously other people directed oh. them. Yeah, and he was like a producer on all of them, and I think wrote uh, a good bit of them. It was definitely it was him and uh, uh, David Frost or Mark Frost. I can't remember the dude's name. It was their big baby of pet project. Um, but yeah, first first season of Twin Peaks, I absolutely fucking adore. The second is not quite as good, but it's still very watchable, and I consider it really good. The new season, the Twin Peaks: The Return, that big thing that came out, Didn't I guess see it was it. Showtime. I watched the first two episodes of that. I'm not going to lie, I was very turned off. I, I was not doing it for me. And a big part of that is because his last feature film that he made, Inland Empire, uh, that was the one, man. That is kind of the movie. Even among David Lynch fans, they're like, yeah, that one's pretty hard to get through. It's pretty challenging. It's like three and a half hours. It's incredibly slow. It's incredibly, honestly, it, it is just boring for a lot of it and at certain points. And it's extremely surreal. It makes this movie look like plain Jane. Oh, you know, basic ass Hollywood story. Like it makes this movie look easily digestible by comparison. Um, and Inland Empire, I, I watched that at kind of the height of my, like, I really like David Lynch. I'm really into his movies. They're so utterly to, unto themselves and just strange and different and unlike anything else I'd seen. And I got to that one, and it took me four attempts to get through it. I fell asleep for the other ones. I, I kept falling asleep. It was like a fucking chore to get through that movie. And once I finally finished it and saw the whole thing, I was still just like, ah, okay. Like, it just fell pretty flat for me. I mean, and like I was saying, like, well, actually, before I get into that, how how many of his movies have you seen? And how do you feel about David Lynch? I like him. I've seen I've seen most of them. Um, yeah. I probably we were just talking about uh, uh, Lost Highway before I got on here, but um, I think Blue Velvet is fucking insane. That I I like. There's not much I've seen that I don't like, but I haven't seen it all. Yeah, to put it simply, okay. um, that, that's, I, that's about me too. Yeah. yeah, I I mean I've probably seen five or six of his movies at the most, and I've liked them all. I had never seen Mulholland Drive before. So I wouldn't say I am well versed at David Lynch, but the David Lynch I've seen I have enjoyed. Yeah, see that that's basically where, where I was for a long time. Where pretty much all of his stuff I, I was really into. Um, and Inland Empire was the first one that really kind of like I hit a wall. It was just like ah, this is just I, I can't I can't do it. Like it, there there comes a point where, and a lot of people will describe. I was even looking at it was a a Reddit post I was looking at today where somebody was like, should I watch Inland Empire? I haven't seen that one yet. It's one of the only Lynch movies I haven't seen. And it was all these diehard Lynch fans talking to this guy about it and trying to convince him to watch it. But uniformly, all of them are still saying, yeah, it's pretty challenging. Like you, you it's a pretty challenging movie to get through. And there's just a point with me where I'm like, when does something that you consider complex and challenging and you know hard to to track and everything when does that go from just challenging complex interesting art to just 
unwatchable, like not good, boring, bad. Like wh- where's the line? Because I feel like Inland Empire walks that line very tightly. And for me, it crossed over of just, ah, it's not very good. Like <laughs> I don't, ch- is it challenging and I'm a, I'm a dum-dum? Maybe. Or maybe it's just not that good. Like I, I feel like one of the problems with David Lynch as a, a figure in filmmaking is that he's kind of reached this point of being like unquestionable. Like everybody kind of, even if they're not David Lynch fans, they're still like, oh, but wow, but what an art, an auteur, and what an artist. And everything he does is still just so fascinating and great. I'm like, well, I agree mostly, but it's not impossible for even a great auteur, a great artist to make something that's just not good. <laughs> like it happens, guys. And I feel like the world doesn't want to hear that with David Lynch. And for me personally, Inland Empire was a big struggling point for me. And then when I went back to try and watch the new season of, Twe- of Twin Peaks, which everybody tells me is fantastic. Everybody loves it. Everybody's all about it. So many people fucking say, oh, it's his masterwork. It's the greatest thing that came out in television or movies that year. It's just fucking incredible. And for me, the biggest problem I have with it is it's just fucking joyless like utterly joyless it's just the most abysmally bleak dark relentlessly bleak painfully awful dark sludge like it was just like god there's just not a crack of light in here it's just you're in a dark room with howling screaming psychotic voices at you 24 7 and that's it appreciate the art you you fool and i'm like i don't know it's not for me at this point sorry guys um and so that was kind of my trouble when i started this one because this is it's not i mean he's made stuff since this movie but this is kind of later lynch like he a lot of his biggest movies he made in the 80s and you know the late 70s or you know into the 80s um so this is kind of latter career lynch and it has a little bit more of the feel of Inland Empire versus like uh, Wild at Heart or Lost Highway. It just feels a little more along those lines. And that that's what kind of had me like nervous. I was like, oh, God, is this going to start to just be like that? Because I am not into it. Um, but it wasn't. It, it, it went to a different place and I think a better place. Uh, but, yeah, I, I struggle a little bit with David Lynch these days, man. Hmm. Interesting. These days as in New Twin Peaks and Inland Empire as your, as your litmus test? Yeah, and I'm, and just honestly, just his, his the way his style has developed. You know, if you, if you it, I think it's actually interesting to to watch his movies in chronological order from how he made them. Like you can see his style growing towards what becomes like you know basically the the latest thing, Twin Peaks, the newest season. Um, and it, it it's for one, it's just getting darker. Like I've noticed his style gets darker and darker and darker. His stories are bleaker and bleaker and bleaker as they go. Uh, they get even more surreal and more unrooted from reality and like i said he's a director who just does not care about like conventional plot or meaning or even a point to a story he just doesn't care about that i I think he's way more interested in the absurd the absurdity of of daily life and and kind of the lurking violent like i I feel like he's so so let me let me jump in because i want to i want to throw you a life raft here because i i i i'm trying to i'm what i'm trying to do is i'm hearing what you're saying but I'm also trying to drill you down on specifics. So let's say Blue Velvet's 1986, right? Mm-hmm. Did you? What were your thoughts on that? I mean, it's, it's been a while since I've seen it, but shockingly dark. Uh, but with the style of it is still, I don't even know how to say it, hopeful in a way. Like there's just, there is still <clears throat> kind of the, the in, hero In other words, coming. favorable. Favorable, yeah, but like, well, how I'm about this? About just like, Let's. Why are we mincing hairs? Do you like Blue Velvet and think it's a good movie? Yeah, I do. How about Wild at Heart? Yeah, I love it. How about Lost Highway? 
I do like that one as well, yeah. And this was two years later, Mulholland Drive. You said you struggled until the end? Not all the way up until the end, but I would say to the halfway point. All right, point, and we'll talk about that in there, a minute. I was struggling. Yeah. So then what was the next one you saw by him? Was it Inland Empire in 2006? Yeah, see, I saw that right when it came out. Like, I, I saw that probably the a couple months after it came out on DVD. And then Twin months. Peaks. So what I'm saying is, I'm hearing what you're saying, but I'm trying to see where you think he developed and changed over time. It sounds like two right. of the samples were just the recent, were, were inland recent. in the latest Twin Peaks. Right. Which see, I haven't seen thing, either of. That's why I'm asking you these questions. Oh, I see. Well, so for me too, like I didn't see Lost Highway or Wild at Heart until like two years ago. So oh, no I shit. saw those after. Yeah, I saw those after Inland Empire. And I was like, ah, this is the Lynch I like. Like, I like this shit. I like his, I would say one of the biggest differences between those movies, especially Wild at Heart as an example, that it's fantastical. It's it's still very surreal and it's sure. got some very fucking dark moments, but it also has this like, inflation beyond reality it becomes almost fantastical and magical even and i would say the same thing about the first season of twin peaks there's almost uh the surrealism almost has a magical quality to it whereas i feel like in london in inland empire the surrealism is just <laughs> reality being turned into a horrible just dark reflection you know, like the, the, fantas- the fantastical element is just this awful, wretched darkness lurking beneath everything. Like there's no magic to it. There's no whimsy. It's just pure, awful darkness haunting every character, every interaction. It's a, just a gloomy, like even like his music changes in his movies. Uh, like in this movie, in, in Mulholland Drive, we get a lot of that like music that's almost just ambient sounds. You know what I mean? Where it's like yeah, it's just awesome. those like... The, yeah, and I like that stuff, but it, it comes to the like. There's still lots of music in this movie. There's a lot of music, and in Inland Empire, there's very little music. It's almost all haunting, clanging, echoey sounds of chains being smacked against a wall in a fucking empty warehouse in hell. Like that's that's the only fucking sound in that movie. A lot of the times, like it's just it's relentlessly that and only that. Got it. I'll have to um, check it out. Um. I haven't. I like I said. Oh, I haven't. Man. I have not seen it. But um, dude, we could have a Herculean fucking bonus commentary track on that. <laughs> we just see, can we survive a watch of Inland Empire together? <laughs> Is it really long though? <sighs> His movies tend it's to be about, a little. Uh, it's like three and a half hours. Yeah, it's way too long. Yeah, it's um, way too long. All right. So yeah, I'm trying to see where stylistically you feel like he shifted away from what you like up through Lost Highway and. Right. Most and, of and I'll totally film. admit, like that's this is my taste. Like, no, it's no, like I'm I know. Saying, oh, I know. Lynch has gotten worse. I'm just like, ah, I'm just not sure if his later style is what I'm into. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a weird situation because he does Mulholland Drive, and then it is really nothing but shorts and documentaries up to Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he kind of he, he Inland Empire. He also said was his last feature film. Sorry, Inland make, Empire. He, that's what I meant to say. 2006. Well, yeah. And that, that he hasn't made a feature-length film since then. He has only made that new season of Twin Peaks. Mm. Well, yeah. Well, think about it. Inland Empire, the last one was Mulholland Drive so there we go. before that. And there's six years se- separating them, which isn't unprecedented, but it, it happened. Uh, pretty cool. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. Awesome. Yeah, I just wanted to get a, I just wanted to get a barometer, uh, essentially, as to where you were on this. Um, I, um, Mulholland Drive, I couldn't look away. Ooh, couldn't look that. away it was it was really wild to watch i find my i found myself 
utterly en- engrossed by it. I don't know why. I, it, it, it's just got to be the way it's shot. It's got to be the eerie nature of it. It's so surreal and weird. Oh, yeah. And you, you know, I watch it twice. I've only seen it two times. So I know people have been like, I've seen it 15 times. And I'm still figuring things out. And I'm like, well, fuck. I'll never figure it out then <laughs> if that's the case. <laughs> but um, um, I, I, I thought it was fucking awesome i really dug it yeah no i definitely i definitely by the end of this movie i certainly appreciate it and like it yeah it was wild man it was uh it was it was just so odd it was so david lynch to me it had such a otherworldly surreal feel and the the music by badalamenti angelo badalamenti i believe is his name and I, I don't know, actually, David Lynch composes a couple of the lighter songs, like the uh, Jitterbug stuff, which is pretty cool. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. But I couldn't look away. Um, and, and, I, and I think it is shot composition and shot choice. I think, if I'm being completely and utterly honest, there is something very tantalizing about the relationship between these women and how odd it was and how it and how it does flirt with fantasy it really does let's be real let's call it what it is and um and just the music would pin such dread underneath seemingly innocent scenes it made you constantly uneasy uh, in addition to the way they shot the way it shot i just it was utterly compelling to me the whole way through and when it breaks bad at the end there and you start to go well wait a second this is it's definitely not time travel, I don't think. I think we're, we're seeing fantasy, reality. I think we're seeing interpretation. I think we're seeing maybe maybe the whole thing. Be- because it's so fantastic, you, you, I almost feel like we're witnessing Betty, i.e. Diane Selwyn's fantasy or, or dream, so to speak, or, or yeah. reconciliation with where she was and where she wanted to be, or maybe some self-reflection, or maybe a little bit of all of it. And uh, that's pretty wild, I, th- I think. I thought it was just cool to watch. And each step of the way, I just found myself drawn in. And oddly enough, you know, I know it's very much a thriller. It has a lot of mystery elements to it. It has a noir style, very Sunset Boulevard, which is also a great fucking movie. But it's, it's weird. You know, it's this, at the end of the day, it almost comes down to something between these two women, um, a love, an adoration. Clearly, they were sexual with one another. Um, and to see it unfold. Not only that, I think it's a great... I, I love this. You know, we just talked about something like this with Mars Attack, which is this real on-the-nose satire. And this satirizes Hollywood, but not with comedy. So it's more no. just like yeah. a commentary on... Los Angeles, a commentary on Hollywood, a commentary on this way of life. And I just liked that a lot. I thought that was compelling to me. Um, I liked the idea of watching each scene be a reflection of that and the music adding so much to it. It, it, The whole time you're watching it, you just feel like the world is going to open up and swallow all of these people into it and they're going to disappear forever. It is wild. Each scene, I felt, oh man, I don't, this is so uneasy. And they have you feeling that the whole time. Now, there's a meta aspect of watching a Lynch film, and that's, it's a Lynch film. So you're going to be uneasy immediately. At least I am. Especially after being pummeled by Blue Velvet, which I think is great. 
but it is <laughs> like a lot of you are like, holy fuck, man, this movie's out there. And even Wild at Heart. But um, it was uneasy. There were things that didn't make entire, that didn't make sense. Some of the dialogue was ludicrous. But when you reflect back on the movie, you go, of course it is because it's supposed to be here because of what we're witnessing here now. And, and, and you definitely have to watch this movie two times, I think. Yeah. But I found yeah. it utterly engrossing the entire time. Danny in the chat says obsession. That is a great way to say it. A oh, great yeah. way to say it. Obsession. No, I think um, one of the strongest guilt. aspects of this guilt. movie. Yeah, That's another guilt. big one. Guilt is so at the core of this, yeah. Um, but one of the strongest aspects of it is how he makes Hollywood and the idea of Hollywood, the setting of it all, this menacing force. Like yes. It feels like a thing that consumes people. That And that, and we see it reflected in Diane slash Betty um, of how it's like consumed her and, and chewed her up into this like ragged, broken person by the end. Right. And maybe that's what I mean when I said I felt like the earth was going to swallow them up. Perhaps, perhaps more succinctly, it was Hollywood. And, you know, we always, you know, what's another movie we saw? L.A. Confidential where we see sort of the darker side of Hollywood. Now, that has uh, a little bit more, a, a much different feel to it because it is, it, it has more of a, a cop betrayal love story crime piece to it where this doesn't as much. The cops are almost perfunctory. They're almost carbon copy, goofy, noir, standing off in the distance looking totally. kind of cops, you know? I honestly felt like that was his satire of like law and order. It was like mm, two grim face detectives and also we don't matter at all. <laughs> right, yeah, pretty cool, man. But um, I, I was, I, I, and he just, <clears throat> I remember watching Blue Velvet with my friend and at one point he literally got up and he said, I'm going to leave the room because I feel sick. Oh, and it damn, was just a yeah. combination of the, of the, of the subject matter in the shot, in the, sh- in the way he composed the shots, it made him, my friend, feel uneasy to where he felt literally ill. Now, he might have been feeling ill for other reasons, but it was definitely exacerbated by the film. And I'll never yeah. forget it. I'll never forget it. It was so crazy. He's like, I'm gonna, I'll be right back. <laughs> it was nuts, man. <laughs> and it's almost like we, we get the oddities almost immediately when this movie starts, right? Oh, yeah. Like we were saying, the, the jitterbug dance sequence here we get of just all of these dance. And it almost even looks like a weird surrealist painting. That's what I'm they're saying. They're all just like yep. refracted. It's like some of them are like the same couples, but we're seeing them duplicated and, and reflecting and their shadows are all above them. And it's just this wild, colorful, zany, out of nowhere image that is never, you know, uh, very much like Lynch, never explained, never given context until the very end of the movie with a quick passing line. Uh, but then we see the face of right. Naomi Watts with these two sweet older looking people. Uh, and we certainly do, don't we? So these sweet, sweet, definitely innocent, never menacing, sweet old people. Yeah. What do you? What's your interpretation of that? Of the older couple? Yep. I by the end of the movie, I believe they are her parents. Okay. I think they are actually her parents. Gotcha. Do you think that her parents disapprove of her life? Mm. honestly no i actually don't well maybe where she ends up but i think they were probably excited to bring her to you know to hollywood i think i think she got a happy send-off when it actually happened when she first came Mm. Um, but i feel like her view of them because of that changes over time right that's good stuff yeah i so much of a lot of the stuff with lynch i almost feel like what we're seeing is personifications of 
feelings, um, personifications of guilt, personifications of things like this, right? And and there's so much of this that I just found fascinating. Like the parents, I I don't know. I I know that the the old lady on the plane, we're going to get to that in a minute, but it is really scary, man. It's, um, it is this sweet surface and this odd laughter underneath. And we'll talk about that in just a second here because um, we should just jump in. Um, Danny's yeah. saying the jitterbug uh, connected to how Betty won her screen test. That's correct. She exactly, won a jitterbug yeah. contest and got to do a screen test, which is why she's flying out. Mm-hmm. So we've met Betty. Now we're going to meet Rita. Right. Well, we have it. Yeah. I mean, we get that very brief glimpse of, of Betty, but the most, I, I don't want to go past a By very way, Laura, Laura Haring. Good Lord. Dream girl. Oh, yeah. Dream girl. Unbelievable. She looks like a fucking old Hollywood starlet. And I'm sure that's why David Lynch picked her. <laughs> um, but no, there's a very important shot between the jitterbug dance and then Mulholland the Holland drive and yeah. the, the, the car driving out. It's that shot of a person, it's from their own point of view of them breathing heavily and they pan over, they kind of like are getting onto the bed and then they sink down face first into the pillow. Yep. And then the rest of the movie begins. And I think that is crucial. Yep, I agree. Um, why do you think it's crucial? Because I think they are going to sleep. Who's and going we to are sleep? getting the beginning of their dream. Ah, yes. Got it. Yep, I would agree with that. Um, do you subscribe to the, to the most of the movie is a dream? You know, for a, for a while there, and I'll admit I did some reading around too, and just kind of seeing other interpretations of it. And by the end of the movie, especially after my second viewing, um, it's, it's kind of the more, I guess you would say vanilla or straightforward interpretation, but yeah, I think the evidence is actually pretty abundant. Me too. The, the first big chunk of the movie is Diane Selwyn's dream. Yep. But we see her putting her head down on that pillow. And part of me wonders where at, where does this become a reality where it was a dream? And the only thing I can think of is when we, we have the name change, when we have the moment with the box, but we'll kind of get to that stuff. Yeah. So down Mulholland Drive we go. Dude, great Angela <sighs> Badalamenti score. And this, he does all of the Twin Peaks music and the, the Twin Peaks theme that I fucking love. Uh, and also he's in the movie. Did you catch that? I did not. He is one of the two executives uh, in that, that oh, really cool. fucking funny <laughs> scene where the dude spits. He's actually the guy who spits out the espresso. Hmm. I like That's it. That's Anglo Battlementi. I did yeah. not know that. But, but, dude, I love that, like, haunting, menacing, echoey synth music that he makes. It's, it's great. It's wild. But it's just the, the red lights of a limo passing through the streets of Hollywood on Mulholland Drive. Yep. And then we have a situation here. <laughs> not too good. Getting a uh, gun with a silencer pointed at you. Get out of the car. Right. Now, if we're to believe that this is Betty's dream, how do you interpret this against later a car picking up Betty or Diane Selwyn? I, like if you I compare and contrast the scenes. Right. And they are very similar. There's even a couple of dialogue exchanges that are the same. Um, so there definitely are reflections of each other. And I think it is probably just the guilt <laughs> that uh, Diane has knowing what she's done and the, the, or the hit that she orders. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, it's that, that's the opening of her dream. And I think the real twisted, sad irony of it is that she put a hit out on, you know, I'm jumping way ahead, but she puts a hit out on, on the, the woman she actually loves. But in the dream, she, the hit is foiled 
uh, and she's saved and becomes a, a hapless damsel for her to nurture and save and take care of. Yep. Step out of the car. They're going to shoot her. Driving crazy kids. Smash into the car. And suddenly we have this lovely woman that will become that we will come to know as Rita for most of the film. Uh, avoids death by first getting shot and then by getting destroyed in a horrific car accident on Mulholland. Mm-hmm. And banging her head evidently hard enough to be, become totally uh, amnesiac. Right. Or so we think. So we think. Part of me thinks that is a manifestation of Betty wishing that she could take away the, the terrible memory that she may have inflicted on her friend. Yeah. If we go yeah. with the dream interpretation, right? And also I think, you know, I, I think she wants... It's almost like her in her dream admitting that she wants a fucking blank slate of a person. She wants a person that she can just have and 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 basically control. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Matthew Lewis, late in the movie, the car took Betty to the dinner when she decided to kill Rita. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. That's how they're inextricably tied together. This That's fantasy, it. obviously, the ultimate fantasy of, of Rita slash Diane is that is what we're seeing play out in the movie, which is they're together. Things are great. She needs her. In, in, in reality, based on the dialogue we hear later in the film, we understand that Rita helps Betty along, gives her small parts in her big films. Rita's the big time star, right? In the flip, right. In, the, in the inverse of this, what we're seeing is Rita who desperately needs Betty. And Betty exactly. is going to be the actor. And even when they do the read here coming up, Rita's terrible. <laughs> And, and, and Betty's great, right? It's an inverse of what happens later, which means, I think, ultimately, what, what, what Betty wants, Blondie, is to, be, is, is to ultimately have her and to be successful and to not delve into this horrible, terrible feeling and to not be chewed up by Hollywood and what it does to everybody and drives you to the point where you put a hit out on your friend, right? She doesn't want that. That's just the way it ends up when she reaches the end of a rope. And this is how these point counterpoints are tied together. Yeah, exactly. And I also think it's very telling because if you if you accept that this is a dream and this is also – and this dream is obviously a haunted dream. There's a lot of guilt within it. But at the same time, it is a, a fantasy of what the real you know Betty slash actual in reality Diane wants. Correct. So it is a kind of fantasy projection. Yep. But what's really telling about it is that – since it's a fantasy, she could almost dream that she is a fully successful actress established in her career and having a great life in Hollywood and rich and famous. But it's not that. It's her starting over, starting fresh. That's what she really wants. She, what she truly wants is to be able to start over and, and undo all of the, the damage that's been done. Correct. Yep. There's no – for the fantasy to work based on what we know, which is ultimately her being run down by Hollywood and her friend's – you could say betraying her and, and openly mocking her at one point, I would say, um, because she is a puppet of Hollywood as well, that to, to go back to a place where you're successful isn't what she wants. This is, this is what I was getting at a minute, minute ago. She wants the purity of what it was before and uh, this friendship that, that was wonderful at one time. That's what she wants to have. She wants to be that again. She doesn't, she doesn't want to be the, the unsuccessful calling a hit out on her friend woman. She wants to be in love with her friend, girlfriend, whatever you want to call it, and on the road to success. Again, there's an innocence to the restart. Exactly, yeah. But 
Then we get to we see Rita, you know, stumbling upon this uh, apartment building, these very nice apartments, and seeing Betty's aunt leaving. You know, we yep. actually see her packing up in her taxi and leaving. And at first, Rita's out there sleeping in the bushes like a barefoot wild lady. Love it. Then she gets inside. Uh, I know, it's like, ah, Dean's favorite. Um, but she gets inside and uh, basically waits for this woman to leave and just goes to sleep on the bed. Yep, awesome. Yeah, in she goes. So we get the quick look in on the on the police, right? <laughs> the totally inconsequential police. Not, doesn't like, mm. she sleep under the table or something? Actually, you're right. Yeah, she does at first. Yeah. And then we get this diner scene. Boy, oh boy. This fucking weird diner Wild. Scene. Winkies. We meet Dan and Herb. Mm-hmm. And the, the one dude, I, I the guy who has the dream, I can't remember which one is which. Um, Dan has Dan? the dream. Yep. Yeah, Dan. That dude, he is in a lot of Lynch's movies. Lynch is another director that loves to reuse people. He has his his core people. Laura Dern is like his fucking yep. girl, uses and everything. Kyle McLaughlin. Love, love Laura Dern. Oh, yeah. Loves him. Um, and this guy has popped up in a lot of his stuff. And he's also a great character in Mad Men. So I actually really like this dude. I was like, oh, fuck, here he is again. Awesome. So <laughs> Dan's dream goes a little like this. I'm in here. It's not day or night. It's half night. But it looks just like this except for the light. And I am scared, like I can't tell you. Of all people, you're standing right over there by that counter. You're in both dreams and you're scared. I get even more frightened when I see how afraid you are. And then when I realize what it is, there's a man in back of this place. He's the one who's doing it. I can see him through the wall. I can see his face. I hope that I never see that face ever outside of the dream. And he sniffles and that's it. To which... Herb says, so you came to see if he's out there. And Dan says, to get rid of this awful feeling. So is this some kind of therapy? Uh, some kind of exposure therapy, I think, to confront his fear. Oh, God, you put the image of it up on YouTube. Ugh, I fucking hate that face. <laughs> that fucking orc face he's got. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, but yeah, dude, this is this is such a great scene. And now, one thing I... I absolutely across all of his films, even Inland Empire, that I think that David Lynch does pretty much unparalleled excellently at, uh, is his depiction of dreams and that surreal imagery and the way that things make sense but don't make sense at the same time that feels like a dream. Nobody does that better than David Lynch. Like he has – like I don't know how he's done it, but he has found a way to capture that fractured logic within dreams where – even the way the guy describes his dream, the way Dan says it, it's like there isn't – he doesn't talk about the guy, the scary face – doing something in particular he just says he's doing it he's the one in control like he's not doesn't he's not even attacking him or doing anything menacing he's just there and he understands that that face is evil that that face is menacing and that is so perfect like the essence of dreams like so so often you have those horrible dreams that are just a feeling there's no real discernible monster or menace it's just a feeling of dread Mm, indeed um it's almost like uh, depression or anxiety. You know, you wake up and it's right there in the bed with you and you're going to have it that day. Right. <laughs> you know, like your yeah, friend's coming with you today, pal. So you better get gonna, used to the a, fucking fact. A big, stinky, homeless orc that's like, I'm going to be riding with you Me today. And you today, gonna, pal. T- Maybe tomorrow, today's too. Today's going to suck. <laughs> well, um, one of the things I want to point out is the camera work here. If you watch it carefully... These are great shots, but the camera shifts a little slightly to the left. It shifts a little to the right. 
It goes back to Herb. It starts to raise on Herb and it moves around. It's, it's constantly making you feel uneasy. That's something be, that he does very well. It's not right. just a still camera. It no. is. It, now, you don't quite feel like it's a steady cam shot. You feel like it's, it's not. And then he's just sliding it to the left, sliding it to the right a little bit. And it fucking tweaks you out. And if you don't know why, part of that is why this makes you feel uncomfortable. The movement makes you feel uncomfortable combined with what's being said, which is scary, this invisible dread just outside over there, and then combined with the music, you know, the whole package, the whole whole enchilada. Mm -hmm. And dude, it makes you feel like it is someone's point of view, not a camera's point of view, but a person, like a, a thing, like is looking at them and hovering around them. Uh, and dude, that's another, I'm, I'm surprised David Lynch has never just tried his hand at a straight up horror movie. I, th- I think he's just not interested. Uh, but you know, there's so many horror elements within his movies, but damn that long winding shot that follows these two guys down to the outside and focusing on just the edge of the wall. That is perfect horror shit that Ter- we've talked about that so many times, like so much more terrifying, like e- e- the real fatal flaw in so many horror movies. And even it ha- kind of happens here, but to a lesser extent, what happens when the, you know, we know the term jump scare, there's a jump that scares you. And then that's it. What do you feel immediately after that relief? You feel relief. You, you know, what's there, you know, what was looking at you, even if it's a scary monster, there's the relief in knowing. And I feel like Lynch is one of those people who just understands that it is so the real true terror is the not knowing and hold it withholding the image that's behind the wall is the scary part. Yeah. Yep. It's a great shot. I think it's really hard to build terror and menace and dread in the middle of the day behind a diner, but he does, he it, does it and it, and it works <laughs> and it. it's a fucking scary moment, dude. Oh yeah. God. Once it finally does <laughs> pop out. Eesh. Yeah. His reaction. Right. And just down he goes. <laughs> down he goes. So what's going on here? What's the scene dude, mean? This, this is something I still struggle with. This is one of the aspects of the movie that I'm still not quite sure, especially the meaning or the, the purpose of the, the homeless creature thing. Um, what that is. Uh, to be honest, I, I keep coming back to the, the idea that uh, that person, that creature, whatever you want to call it, is almost the dream's manifestation of the hit being done. Because later on, we see it has, it has possession of the box, um, which is kind of the representation of the act of uh, the Camilla being murdered. Yep, absolutely. It's, um, yeah, man, it's, it's really weird. It's a... Just the whole the whole start of this scene is bizarre with the way the camera kind of is detached, right? It, it's right. it's almost like a detachment from reality, so to speak. It has a it's got a dream quality to it. Mm-hmm. And also, one thing, one important thing to note, and I didn't notice it until my second viewing. And there's so many times like this where it's a quick in between shot, and it's very easy to just like to not catch, but we see Rita go to sleep under the table and then the diner scene happens. And when the diner scene ends, we got cut back to a quick shot, quick shot of Rita sleeping and then to the next scene. And there's like a small part of me that thinks that that's a dream within a dream. Like it's Rita's dream of fear. Um, I'm not sure. I think, yeah, I, I, <clears throat> the only thing I can interpret from this personally is that if, if we are dealing with Rita's dream right now, 
this is a manifestation of something that dream within a dream is one way to say it, but I almost feel like it's a, at, at this point in the film, it's a manifestation of the fear of becoming this homeless person, which I believe is supposed to be a woman. Right. And, and right. just utterly terrifying people. Just it, being it's, completely outcast. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I think because it, I think it's, I think it's an, the antithesis of everything she wants in Hollywood, which is acceptance. I think this person represents everything that is antithetical to what she would want to strive for as a young actress in Hollywood. Um, right. She's not attractive. She's utterly terrifying. And mm-hmm. um, she has no, you know, she, she really does nothing except handle this box, which is a representation of a dream, which obviously the, 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 the irony here is that this monster lady is handling this dream yet unable to interact with it, right? Yeah. That's my interpretation on the fly just now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Not too bad. Not too shabby. It's all right. Pulling out of my ass. I promise I didn't read that anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because if you did, it would be better, you know? Yeah. Matt uh, Matt Lewis is saying, some say it's Betty's guilt. That's possible. Um, That almost works better versus, because then it is, because then what I'm saying almost still stands and is better because if it is her guilt, then it is the, uh, the sheer terror that that guilt in, induces or could induce if discovered. And then with her handling the box, it is a lack. It is, it is utter torture. It is a really harsh poetic justice to hold a box which represents dream and reality and to not be able to interact with it. Right, a locked box of it. Right. Imagine if I, if I handed you a box and I said, everything you want is here, is, is, is in it, and you just couldn't do anything about it, you know? <laughs> could never. It, it was a, if it was a physical representation of your goals and, and aspirations, if I could make it a physical object, which would be this cube, right? And then all you could do is physically touch it, but it would never manifest in your life. I mean, that's terrifying. It is. Never trust a cube. Indeed. <laughs> Never trust a fucking mysterious cube. <laughs> that's how cube. you get your soul torn apart, baby. That's it. Yep. But um, yeah, that's kind of the last we see of Dan, more, more or less. Also, the moment, where, the moment where Herb goes and pays and Dan starts to feel it happening. Yes, dude. That's <laughs> so good. Like you're standing where you were in the dream. Yikes, man. Oh, uh, yeah. So good. Such great dread building. <laughs> Talk to me about the phone calls. Oh, this this next scene is nothing but phone calls. Uh, Mr. We get a, a quick look at Cook our girl sleeping, laying down, looking mm-hmm. utterly perfect, by the way. Oh, yeah. Dazzling. Um, but then we get to this Mr. Rock, um, mm. who was really never explained, which it doesn't really need to be, but he's kind of depicted as the the guiding hand behind all of the decisions in Hollywood. Sure. Inscrutable decider. Yeah. And they, all he does is call a, a guy we never see. We only see the back of his head, and he says the girl is still missing, mm-hmm. which we, of course, right now believe is Rita. Yep. Yeah, I think we're just seeing, as we come to learn in the movie, just the un unknown forces of Hollywood, so to speak. Right. And I think that's, a, that's an important part of how 
Diane, the real version of Betty, perceives Hollywood, that it is just a, this impossible, impenetrable hierarchy of people in closed doors that you never see making decisions about where you're going to be and your livelihood or, or not casting you. And it, it, I feel like she feels especially out of control, that like there's this huge power structure that she doesn't understand, pulling all the strings and she can't do anything about it. And, and let's talk about the composition some like. more because – if you look at the shot where he's sitting in the chair, I guess it's a wheelchair of sorts. It I is so, yeah. It is without life. The room totally. is completely empty. He is very small in the shot, which almost makes you feel like he's diminutive set against the way they decide to, you know, frame him. Right. But then we, Boy, we do get close. Another thing, another thing David Lynch loves. Curtains, fucking loves curtains. Loves Big, curtains. long, flowy, drapey curtains. He's all about them. It's in everything. <laughs> he fucking man loves curtains. He sure does. Man behind the curtain that plays into the idea. It's a Lynchian vision of the Wizard of Oz, says Danny. That's good stuff, Danny. That's a good point. <clears throat> and Dan- it makes sense Dan- as well. Danny yeah. and Matthew should be podcasting on this shit. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but um, I like the idea, again, the, un- the unknown forces, the, uh, the powers that be. The girl is still missing. And then this guy calls up somebody who answers the phone and he says hello. And this guy who received the message from Mr. Rock just says the same. Mm -hmm. And that's it. And then they call another phone that goes unanswered. Right. One of the things I like about this chain of calls is that (laughs) not much needs to be said. It's almost like these old rules are in place. And the contrast and the difference between where the phone call starts and where it goes to this beat up forearm, this gross wall, a dirty yellow phone. Right. It's so filthy and gross. Right. It's, 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 we're getting, it, we're going from the, the skyscrapers down to the boots on the ground people. This is the hierarchy. It works all the way down, I think is what we're trying to see visually here. Right. Right. And another, another important thing here that I actually only just noticed now um, the phone that goes unanswered is revealed at the end of the movie right. to be the phone that Diane has. Yep. And we cut from that shot of the phone just ringing and no one answering it to Betty arriving in Los Angeles. She's, that's where she is. She's not answering the phone because she's busy having her dream restart. Awesome. Um, yeah, the, the stuff with Betty, the, the, I, I, I want to take a second to talk about this old couple. Yeah, yeah, they're strange, man. It's really weird <laughs> because they seem so nice. You know, they're, they're wishing, you know, and, and here, the way they're presented at this point, they are people who were just on the plane with her. Uh, and she had been mm-hmm. talking to them on, on her ride here. And they're like, oh, it was so nice to meet you. Best of luck. We'll be seeing you on the big screen. Even the guy's like, oh, it was so wonderful to meet you. Be- you know, good luck. And that's it. Thank you. Bye. Uh, and then we, before she gets in her car, we get this strange shot of them just happily laughing with very dreadful music in the back of a limo, riding away. And I don't like that laugh. I don't like the laugh. I don't like the way it's shot. I don't like the music. It's all, it's all. all scary. Right. It told like that contrast of these seemingly sweet, happy old people, but their laughs become menacing and, and, and strange. And why? Why are they still just laughing in the back of this limo? Why are they in a limo? Like all of those details start to just seem off. Yeah. So I don't know if it was supposed to be as obvious as I perhaps thought it was for just a second. But, you know, it's one of the things these people almost represent because these people come back later in the film, don't they? They do. 
So they, when they come back later in the film, they are almost representing the mental state of Rita at the time, right? So part of me thinks that they are a personification of the darker side of Hollywood, which is on the surface, we're very kind and sweet to you, but we laugh at you when you're not there. You're, you're a fool to think you're going to do anything here, right? Mm, that's interesting. I didn't see it that way, actually. I had that impression right away here, which was it's they these old people, you know, Hollywood's been around a long time. Are they almost a personification in this dream of... Like the old, old Hollywood? Old Hollywood in that we're smiling here at you and we're laughing at you over here. Like that's so Hollywood to me. True. Like the caddy yeah. and petty nature. Uh, I'm talking about the worst parts of Hollywood now, right? Right, right. And you know, to be honest, I my interpretation of them as in reality, her them being her parents, that the reason I thought that is that by the end, you know, they go from at first when they see her off, they're sweet and and hopeful and you know supporting her, and by the end, they become these again figures of menace that are laughing at her and chasing her and being so antagonizing. Um, that I almost saw it as her blaming her parents for leaving her here. That like, like she she took the has twisted the act of them, you know, sending her, you know, dropping her off in Los Angeles from a happy send off to now you cursed me to be in this place. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I don't. I. I. I'm not sure. Only in that I don't know if they are her parents based on the dialogue here, unless it's just again going back to fantasy land. So uh, it's tough to say. The other thing I thought is, could they be, <laughs> is it possible that they are a representation of her personality almost? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, let me say this. Her yeah. id, is that the word I'm looking for? <laughs> <laughs> the, the secret unconscious desires? Uh, yeah, maybe. Because, because they're so hopeful now. And they're so not at the end. Yeah, true. Like they're hopeful for her and she's hopeful for herself. What, what confuses me though, in terms of the dream is if we're going on the theory that this is Rita Diane's dream, then we have to figure out what it is these people would represent in this moment when they are literally laughing under creepy music to her. Right, right. Oh, and I think it's also important to remember that since this is her dream, Betty slash Diane, Everyone, literally everyone in it is some kind of piece of her, some reflection of her her subconscious or her hopes or her guilt. I think everybody is at this through this whole section of the movie, some chunk of her reflected back. Right. Yeah, yeah. I like it. I can dig it. Well, off they go to her new palatial fucking beautiful Hollywood <laughs> apartment that she's gonna be staying in just until she makes it big. Yeah, beautiful place, man. Totally. Fucking everything covered in vines. It's ancient and gorgeous. Yeah, it's really cool looking. <laughs> and full of rich old people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. It's fucking wild, dude. <laughs> uh, and that's, dude, and here we come to also uh, Miss Coco, the, the actual landlord who she goes and talks to. And we reach another thing that David Lynch just loves kooky old people <laughs> he loves him some kooky old people and i think to, to be honest it's become david lynch is because he is slowly becoming a kooky old person <laughs> that's hilarious i want a dude. lot of weird kooky old people i want an old man in a hawaiian shirt 
and he's going to have a flamingo-shaped golf club. I'm David Lynch. That's how it's going to be. Kooky old and old. He's always like kooky. That's for sure. He he loves it. No denying his kooky nature. <laughs> um, yeah, so we have, um, let's see, uh, Call Me Coco, everyone else does, right? Her name is Mrs. Lennox, we learn. Totally. And th- to me, she is also very much the old Hollywood. Like, just the way she's dressed, the way she acts, the way she talks. Uh, and very much like the 1940s starlet look about her. Like, that's what she used to be. I can dig it. Uh, the dog shits on the ground, and <laughs> Coco is, uh, you know, saying she's going to bake the dog alive, basically. <laughs> I'm going to bake his little bum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, this is all, this is probably a moment of kind of normalcy here. Right. It's right. still uneasy. Say- it's still weird. Oh, yeah. But, but it's, it's, a, it's a brief scene, this introduction, her getting there where we feel, outside of it all being overgrown and shit, she's talking about, you know, there's a prize-fighting kangaroo. Let's go see Ron's apartment. It's a good one. <laughs> Betty's just really overwhelmed here. Everything's unbelievable. Coco gives Betty the key, offers to introduce Betty to the other tenants later. And, you know, that, that reminded me of some fucking Rosemary's Baby shit, actually. Dude, totally. Oh, my God. Right? That's so true. I'll oh, meet these people. Everything will be fine. Hail Satan! <laughs> <laughs> so good. <laughs> But yeah, oh it's um, it's a, it's just a moment of nothing too out there. Well, I also, I, I think one thing I noticed on my second viewing, uh, especially, is that this apartment, and it, we really get a long look at this apartment when she first first gets in here, uh, and it's gorgeous. I mean, it's a beautifully furnished place. It's huge. It's fantastic. Anybody'd be happy to fucking live here. It's wonderful. Um, and one thing I noticed is that nothing, nothing bad or disturbing happens in this apartment. I mean, she finds Rita and they have some uncomfortable conversations in here, but that's actually them growing closer and getting to know each other. Nothing bad happens in the apartment. It's like a weird little oasis in this movie where, and I, and I feel like that's what it is to Diane and her subconscious that this idealized apartment that she, you know, she wanted to, to, to have and to live in and starting off her new career, her career so fresh. Uh, this place is, shielded from everything else everything else bad happens outside of this and we see the total opposite once we see the actual home she really lives in yep i can dig it and uh yeah she looks around it's really cool place nothing is really amiss other than rita being there yeah exactly yeah and this is just a bizarre moment right but but this is this is the shit out of rita i'm just keep calling them rita in, in and um, Betty for now. But this is the shit out of it's Betty easier, that yeah. is just so endearing. This childlike wonder, this optimism. She's so bright and smiley. Yeah, no, she's so happy and eager and just, you know, fresh and young and just looking forward to everything. It's like this, at this point, this character is nothing but hope. Nothing Indeed. but, you know, happiness. Yep. And uh, that's I mean, she already sh- just assumes she assumes the best about this fucking total stranger in her apartment. She's like, "Oh, you must be my my aunt's friend." I'm like, really? Exactly. <laughs> Did and your that, aunt ever fucking say that? That's what's so bizarre about it is that there is no okay. This is weird. I'm going to call the police. Nobody told me. Coco should know. Mm-hmm. It is. It's just a great representation of where she's at mentally in general. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Exactly. Yeah, just not acting normal. Even this, the, the behavior is like almost fantastical and just how removed from the concerns of reality. 
Yeah. It's wild, man. And yeah, and she asked, this is where she asked her, what's your name? And she has no answer to that. She, and that, that's a really important thing too. Her amnesia is just like total and all, all total consuming amnesia. It's not like, oh, I remember where I was. I don't know what happened. No, she f- forgot her name. She has like no identity at all. Uh, and she takes the name Rita from the po- poster for uh, Gilda with Rita Hayworth. And I think this goes back to some of the things we said at the open, which is this would be ultimately desirable for Betty. Oh, absolutely. For her to forget everything, right? That's what she would love. That's what she would love because she wants to be the actress because, and, um, you know, we get these little clues, which is the way, the way Rita decides on Rita by looking at Rita Hayworth, which is fascinating as Rita Hayworth is an actress. (laughs) There you go. Right, We don't know anything about Rita. She's an utter mystery because of her amnesia. But that's what Betty wants. If this is some sort of fantasy and dream for Betty right now that we're experiencing, you know, great looks, she's, she's pretty, she's bright, everything's happy, she's so nice. Uh, Rita is, you know, quieter, sultry, a lot more mysterious. And, right. and she has no baggage <laughs> because she is no one. Right, Absolutely. And it's a perfect scenario for Betty. And that's why this is uh, so wild to watch. Right, right. And she talks about how she was so excited to be here. I'm from Deep River, Ontario. I'm just a sweet Canadian plucky girl. That's it. Plopped down in Hollywood. That's it. And um, that's kind of as far as this goes, right? Well, she she notices that she has uh, an injury on her head because she does mention that she was in a car accident, but we don't really know much else about it. She didn't say much else about it, at least. Yep. But she gets her to to lay down. Yep. She calls this the dream place. That's important. I think those are her literal words. Yeah. And I think that's also why the place is so protected. Like, we see none of the, the disturbing events of the movie happen there. Nothing. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's the dream palace. And nothing is even weird in the place. Like, there's no... Exactly. You know, in a David yeah. Lynch movie, if he wants you to feel uncomfortable, he's going to make you feel uncomfortable in this room really quick. Totally. He's going to shoot... Yeah. He's going to slide the camera around. He's going to put a weird color. He's going to have some sort of contrast happening. Uh, and it's going to be weird. But what he does do is we still do get the music. We still know something is kind of amiss here. Yeah, exactly. But that's, that's more for the audience, I think. Yeah. Uh, Danny, Danny in the chat also just pointed out the Rita Hayworth movie, Gilda, a movie about obsessive obsessive love. Yep. Never seen that, so I don't know, but that's you know, interesting detail. That's awesome. I did not know that. I had a feeling, I was like, I should probably look up what that movie's about because I guarantee totally. you it's not just placed there by accident. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely should have trusted, roger, i should have trusted my instincts <laughs> roger ebert was even saying he thought um uh herring the woman who plays rita was like yeah just th- she should be uh, in the remake of gilda she's just got the fucking look yeah like he was saying like that's no mistake that's cool and now we're gonna get some establishing shots of hollywood indeed and, and we're gonna meet skyscrapers dude this scene and now this is something i want to talk about for one, I, I, I would bet you, I would put cold hard cash down that even David Lynch would say that people take his stuff sometimes too seriously because David Lynch is fucking funny. He's funny, this man. scene is goddamn funny. Like, I was laughing my ass off for most of this. Like, even, even Thoreau's performance is so heightened and almost cartoonish. And, dude, this, this, I actually really love this scene. This scene is just so perfectly bizarre and funny and absurd. I love it. Um, so, do you, so, in other words, you think this more plays for comedic hijinks than anything? 
Oh, I mean, it has it has purpose, especially in as far as reinforcing the whole mysterious Hollywood hierarchy that just makes decisions and overrules people, and and you can't ever discern why. Like they just it just comes down from atop a tower somewhere. Here come some representatives. We represent somebody who represents somebody who represents somebody, and we're here to tell you everything you're supposed to do. Um, like I feel like that's kind of the the real purpose of this scene, but the way it's played out, I think. What what David Lynch also has just a great eye for is the absurdity of quiet, normal, everyday moments. Correct. Like the pauses between a handshake. He's great. That, when, that, he does that to mastery in Twin Peaks. Absolutely. Like those those moments where the conversation lulls for a second and it's just eye contact. Like finding those little moments to drill down on like, ooh, how weird it is that we're just two people sitting here looking at each other. Like, like, like he drills into that that space for... We're, where there's if we're not talking, then now we kind of don't know what to do, and it's like an odd, fluid, weird moment. <laughs> and he loves that. He loves to play up the that inherent awkwardness that's always around everything. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, largely, what we get out of this scene is essentially what you said. We meet the Castigliani brothers, and um, they say, "This is the girl." Adam says, "No this way." Is the girl. <laughs> and I, I love how this scene starts out too, with just like. The guy sitting next to Adam saying, all right, so just remember to keep an open mind, you know, just keep an open mind about this. They're going to have some recommendations. And Adam's like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> like, it's, it's so vague. He's like, open mind about what? Right, <laughs> and it's right. already just so weird. And then the guys come in, hand the picture, and the, and the other two executives are like, oh, she's very pretty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's it. yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. like, that's it. And and Adam's just going to be like, what's the photo for? What are, what are we talking about? What recommendation? What is this? Like, the whole thing is just so bizarre. Yeah. It's funny they went with the Castigliani brothers. It almost has a mafia way about it. Totally. Totally. And I, I think that's another thing that, that David Lynch is playing up in Hollywood of how, I mean, and that really is true. Like the mafia has had its hand in the production of a lot of movies. Like sure. just being, being the, you know, silent investors. Hollywood, in like Vegas. This. Part of me wonders if it was added to this movie just to add menace to the undertones a little bit. I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't literally place the exact reason he went this direction as it relates to the movie. But then again, I'm not really supposed to. Right. I think it, it's just, again, the Hollywood machine, the, the cruelty of people with money making, you know, taking art and just making it their investment and deciding things, overruling the creators. Because I think that's also anytime there's a, a movie that has a director in it being pursued and, and harassed by the, the financial side of the film business, I'm like, boy, the <laughs> director of this movie sure is saying something, aren't they? Yeah, of course, man. Of course. No question about it. But um, yeah, they, uh, the guy asks for espresso. The other guy asks for nothing. <laughs> this is, and even before they come in, he's like, all right, well, we, we researched this with espresso. This is like a really good one. And the other dude's like, he's not going to like it. <laughs> he's still not going to like it. What's this? What, again, is this, what are we doing here? What's, what's Lynch doing? I don't even know. I think, again, this is just one of those, like the kowtowing to power and, and the money and how 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 much of a fool it makes everybody like we had to research a fucking espresso to make this guy happy and it's the world's best and it's been highly recommended and the dude just spits it out all over a fucking napkin and it's so gross like it's just the absurdity of the everyday um and i think it's i think it's lynch just taking that kind of kowtowing and how it still doesn't even work and just making a mockery of it a big cartoon of it right 
one of the one of the things I'm forced to ask myself at this point in the script is, are we still in Rita's dream? I say yes. Um, yeah. I, I do still think so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, because there's really no perspective here. Oh, oh, did you mean to say Betty? By the way, you said Rita. Oh, sorry, Betty. Yes. <coughs> Excuse me. Because yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and and I, I mean, I imagine it is on some level, right? Right. I I do still think it all is because Adam as a character uh, in these parts of the movie is it's very much tied into the the movie that Betty was going to be a part of. And, you know, Betty, even though she's not in these moments, they're talking about her. They are, she is now the new chosen girl. And I feel like that's very much part of her fantasy. Yeah, because Camilla Rhodes doesn't look like either of them. In fact, we know who it is. And part of me wonders, would because later in the movie, we see her upset that Adam doesn't pick her. Yeah. And I almost feel like maybe there's a part of this scene where she's reconciling that by saying he was ordered to by forces he couldn't control. Maybe it right. makes her feel better. A sense of peace that she was picked and the other, she was not picked and the other girl was picked. And it's because, oh, Adam didn't have a choice. And maybe that makes her feel better. Yeah. If we're still going under the Betty, if we're in Betty. <laughs> we're in Betty. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. No, I think so. Nice. So he spits the fucking espresso out like an animal. Like a filthy fucking animal. And, and the, the other screaming. Just, just fucking screams. <laughs> Oh, man. It's weird, yeah. One guy says nothing, and the other guy is just bananas. Exactly. Totally fucking crazy. And, and hammering home, like, this is not a recommendation. This is the girl. Yep. It's wacky. And I think that's another thing that, that Lynch is so about, is the potential for violence or aggression underneath Indeed. every behavior, underneath everything that we do, every interaction. Like, everybody is so, they're just a razor's edge away from animalistic fucking wildness. mm and I think that this dude just fucking screaming basically for no fucking reason. Yeah. I love Adam's take too. What's going on here? <laughs> what What is this? Yeah. <laughs> fucking Dean Stockwell, by the way. Is that who that is? No. What's his name? No. Um, yeah, I, I always forget fuck, his name. I looked it up earlier and I forgot. Yeah, he's he's one of those dudes that's just been in everything. Obviously not Dean Stockwell, but you know what I'm saying. He he always reminds me of Dean Stockwell. Uh, yeah, he does. I mean, they do have a very similar face. Uh, young, Yeah, when he was younger. Right. Castigliani. I'll look him up right now. It's, um, oh, Dan Hedaya. Dan Hedaya. Wasn't he, he was um, in Commando. (laughs) He got blasted with a shotgun through the window at the end. No shit. Yeah, probably. Pretty sure that was him. That's awesome. He deserved it. Oh, yeah, he's a piece of shit in that movie. Um, So outside, we see, also, we we do see Mr. Roke appears to be listening in on this or some kind of. Oh, yeah. No, he is. Yeah. Roke is listening to this entire meeting because it's kind of implied that these are his orders, that he has chosen this girl and she will be in the movie and making sure that it's happening. Adam makes a decision to smash up the windshield of the Castiglione's uh, limo. Fucking love it. Super funny once again. (laughs) Yeah, it's awesome. I love how he speeds (laughs) away so fast. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. He just comes up and he's like, is this the Castigliani brothers car? And the guy's like, hey, get out of here, bud. He just nods and then smashes the fucking windshield with that golf club. The golf club that he had the entire time, by the way, even in the meeting on the table. Yep, he did. Which is just also just weird. <laughs> yep, good stuff. And then we go back to Mr. Roke's room and we see one of the Castiglianis going to see him. Her name is Camilla Rhodes. The director doesn't want her. Do you want him replaced? I know they said then that means we should shut everything down. Do you want us to shut down everything? Right. 
Mitch Rogue's just sort of prompting him along. Right. And we fade to black. Pretty cool. Creepy. <laughs> and then to this fucking <laughs> wacky ass Hitman sequence, which I love. I think it is utterly bizarre and utterly hilarious. Um, also, that's honestly something like, I feel like, fuck, of course, David Lynch would find the humor in it, but I feel like, why has there not been a more comedic take on the idea of a hitman and like the bungling hitman? I'm like, that is, it's so fucking fun. It's like the darkest slapstick ever. Yeah. It starts <laughs> off so really funny. intense, you know, like these guys are it having does. this conversation. He just cold blood ices the guy. Ices him. And they, they, they seem like they know each other too. Like yep, they actually they're are familiar. friends or at least yeah, familiar. And he just, boom, wastes him on the desk. And after asking about this, uh, the black book of basically everybody in Hollywood, the famous black book by sure. this, I guess, producer. Yeah, I like, I like the way this scene's done. It's the laughing, the, I don't know, it, it, was, it was cool. This guy, <laughs> um, the, the is, is Mark Pellegr... Yeah, yeah, is the hitman named Ed? I confuse him. I am mm, confused on that myself. Uh, I was just looking at I it think his name is yes. Pellegrino, right? But I swear the guy with the long hair, the, the guy with the long hair reminds me of um, the dude in the fucking Seagal movie, man. I swear to God, it reminds me of him, but with not long hair. He had short hair in it. I don't think it's him, but it, it has me super curious. Vincent Castellanos, Castellanos, or whatever the fuck his name is. Oh, he's the long haired guy? Yeah. He is not in. Uh, he's not in any of the Seagal films. He just sounds like him. He reminds me of somebody from. Um, God damn it! What's the movie? Out for Justice. Anybody see oh. Richie? He sounds like one of those guys <laughs> in that crew. I thought maybe it might have been him, but it's not. Uh, but yeah, what what's your take on the blundering aspect of this? <laughs> Honestly, man. I don't know. I really don't know. I, I, I was thinking about that on my second viewing of like, what is the, like, because this scene is really and truly, I mean, it's dark, but it really is played for laughs. And I'm like, I don't know. I, 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 I think it's almost just a non sequitur Lynch finding the, the bizarre comedy of murdering people. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Do you have a, do you have a take on how I it mean, plays into the rest of the story? I, I, the only reason I'm even reaching into any, all of these scenes where I am is because I know it's Lynch and I know, the storytelling here. And I almost feel like maybe it's, maybe there's a couple of things here. I, I don't know. First of all, this guy's so weird. Like he's such, not, he's not an atypical hitman. Right. Absolutely. Like he's not who you think would be, especially a Hollywood paid hitman. Right. You would, you would imagine that we would be seeing, we just saw these kind of menacing Italian men, one of which had a very explosive temper. And in the next scene, we're seeing a hitman which looks like he would not be related to these guys in any way, shape, or form. And he essentially is blundering a hit. So bad. Has to kill three people instead of one. Yep. He has to kill three people instead of one. He sets off a fire alarm. So obviously he's, he fucked up. I don't know if there's something to be said about mistakes. I don't know if there's something to be said about the hitman's skill level. I don't know if there's something to be said about the absurdity of it all. That's more of the comic end. The other end is, is are we just seeing, because you're right, it's played for laughs, but is the irony that, you know, they're, they're all sort of be getting ground up in the, in the Hollywood machine, so to speak. Is it, is it just the fallout that, it, that the tendrils of Hollywood go beyond the targets and into the innocent, so to speak? I don't know. Is that, I'm reaching only because I know I'm watching a Lynch film. <laughs> right. No, I think that, I think there's a necessary amount of, uh, 
Pilates stretching we got to do for David Lynch movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> got to stretch out a little bit and try to piece this together. But no, I think I think that's a perfectly good take uh, on it. Um, well, even if, if a, we imagine ourselves in Rita's dream, sorry, I keep doing that. If we imagine ourselves in Betty's dream, what would her interpretation of this be? Do you know what I mean? Like if we think right. of the Betty character and we know that she eventually hires this guy and if we think that this dream is coming after that fact to reconcile her guilt around it, maybe there's maybe the answer is there. Mm. Or even just that to Betty, uh, especially in real life, she perceives this as like a hardened hitman and she's taking this this, you know, paying him to go ahead and murder this person and it's this really dark act and this is also kind of this scene kind of subverts that by showing that he's also kind of a bumbling idiot that it's not what it seems. Right. Maybe maybe she takes peace in that fact. Remember, she doesn't want right. to kill her friend. No, not at all. Yeah, so maybe there maybe that's maybe that's cuz if this is her perspective, maybe again, we're seeing a lot of what we're seeing here is an idealized version in a fantasy of what she wishes would be the case, right? So if we apply that logical bridge to each of the scenes we're witnessing, the only thing we can come up with is that perhaps she's she hopes this guy sucks or hopes he fails or something. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I can see that. Again, I'm reaching. I think we're getting out there now, though. <laughs> yeah. But this, God, you could totally play out this scene with the fucking curb your enthusiasm fucking scene. The fucking music. <laughs> Just total fucking goof up. Yeah, it's pretty cool. But no, I like I like exploring the ideas behind it because it's a fucking wacky movie. You know, it's not... I don't think he does anything accidentally. No, I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, but we go back to Betty on the phone with her auntie. With her sweet auntie. I, oh, I don't think we need to worry. We don't have to call the police. She's harmless. <laughs> she is. You're the fucking viper. That's the other um, cool flip in this script is that we aren't too sure about Rita the whole movie. Right. She's the dark-haired, mysterious one. This is the plucky blonde who is uh, full of hope and dreams, man. Yeah. And that's I, that's such a take on on old Hollywood starlets, too. That Absolutely. This, this is supposed to be, you know, the, the trope is that the blonde is the, the unsullied, perfect, innocent. Uh, and that gets way thrown off by the end. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, she's, um, you know, I thought you, you, where do we go to? There's, um, well, this is when she starts talking about how she doesn't know who she is and her name's not actually Rita and she just picked it from the poster and, and she's lost. Yep. Um, no, I don't know what my name is. I don't know who I am. Your name must be in here. And this is where we go into the purse. I love the slow zipper sound. Yeah. I'm just finding these mysterious stacks of cash. Yep, stacks and of cash. That triangular blue key. Yep, yep. That's um, the triangular blue key. That's right. And both women kind of take a look at it. We shoot over to Joe eating a hot dog and a blonde girl with him without a bra. Doesn't want a hot dog, just a cigarette. Apparently a hooker. And Joe's asking if he's seen any new ladies on the street. So we assume Joe's looking for Rita. That is it. <laughs> another... Another that's another thing that Lynch is into is just non-speaking extras who are just like weird flavor for the scene. Like we, even with Mr. Rock, we have that guy standing behind him with the mustache and the vest who literally never says anything for the entire movie anytime he's shown. And this dude in the leather jacket just eating a hot dog with a cigarette in his mouth <laughs> and a leather fucking jacket. It says nothing. 
Literally does nothing at all. Just some he, weird dude that Joe hangs out with. Yeah, he's definitely a fucking weirdo. <laughs> nothing flavors up a fucking hot dog like a Marlboro. Mm. Yep. We go back to Betty and Rita discussing the money and the key. Rita doesn't really remember where they're from. Rita says that there's something there. Ooh. Deeper, darker mystery. Mm. Adam is told that Ray fired everyone and closed the set. So he's on the phone with Cynthia. That's right. His movie is is getting pretty much shut down. Right. And that's because um, he's not playing by the rules. He's not playing ball. That's it. And he heads back home to uh, his gigantic Hollywood mansion, puts away his golf club, and starts looking for wife. And wife's in bed with Billy Ray Cyrus. <laughs> with Billy Ray fucking Cyrus. Dude, I shit myself Dude. laughing. I could not believe it. I was like, is that seriously Billy Ray Cyrus? <laughs> no fucking way. Amazing. Oh my God. So good. <laughs> Hilarious. Oh, don't stop riding my cock. My achy breaky cock. <laughs> Your wife's got a body. A sexy little body. <laughs> I'm going to plower every day. <laughs> fucking oh, Billy man. Ray Cyrus. Hilarious. And this is another scene that is just so fucking funny. Like, now you've done it. Just forget you ever saw. It's better that way. Yep. He takes her fucking jewelry into the kitchen and dumps pink Fuck paint you. all over it. <laughs> it's so petty and good. I fucking think it's so hilarious. weird. It's so weird. And he gets covered in the fucking paint. And then Billy Ray Cyrus just fucking kicks the shit out of him. Yeah. Gets thrown out of his own house. That'd be the day. <laughs> <laughs> That's the day. You know what they say? That'll be the day that I die. <clears throat> <laughs> and the music in this scene is also spectacularly comic and just way more silly than in any other point in the movie. Yep. I think this is another one of those let's play interpretive games if we're if we're still in Betty's head. Oh, yeah. I think she loves the idea of this happening to Adam. Absolutely. I love. I think she loves the idea that Adam's only recourse is to dump pink, not typically associated with masculinity, let's be real, onto jewelry <laughs> while the pool boy throws him out of his own fucking house. Yeah, with a bloody nose. Yeah. Just totally humiliated and shamed. Absolutely. This is absolutely part of her fantasy. Yeah. And uh, boy. Oh, man, that, that fucking... <laughs> That fucking barbed wire tattoo on Billy Ray Cyrus. Oh, it's man. Tough. It's a tough call. It's tough. It's pretty tough. It's a tough call. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. Well, they are going to hide the bag. That is it. Now, is this the part where they, they try to go, they're going to try and call Diane? Has she remembered that name yet, or is that later? She doesn't know Diane yet. Okay. Yeah. I'm trying to remember who she's calling right here, because they go off to, to a payphone. Um, they, what do they do here? I'm trying to remember. I have it on my notes. Hold on. Ring. Oh, I'm sorry. You know what it is? It's, they're calling to find out about an accident because right now, that's right. The they're calling the police. That, yeah. She's calling the police to see if there was an accident reported because the on only law. thing that Rita has been able to remember was that it was, she was headed to Mulholland drive. And so they're just calling to say, hey, was there an accident on Mulholland drive? And they find out that yes, indeed there was. That's right. Yep. So, and that, then they hang up and then they decide that they're going to check the paper inside the diner. Nothing's on the, nothing happens in the, nothing's in the paper. However, the waitress's name is Diane and it really triggers Rita here. That is it. Which is amazing because (laughs) 
This is something that happens, and this is this is also a great inverse on the on the fantasy versus the reality, because later in the movie, when when Betty later in the movie when Betty's in the diner with the hitman, the waitress's name is Rita. Yeah, which is hilarious because we know that that's the reality of what she experienced. So in the dream, it's almost like the name. It's almost like she's like applied the 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 waitress tag of Rita to her, right? Or or Betty. (laughs) Still having name troubles. What? Because in real life, her the the waitress was named Betty. Betty. Yes, I'm sorry. Jesus Christ, that's my fault. I keep confusing the two. (laughs) Yeah, they have that same hard T. Yeah. So I just like the way that's an inverse. It's slick. Yeah. No, it's good. And them, of course, just being at the same winkies as the the dream scene earlier. That's another, I think, useful part of that, the scene with Dan and Herb, is that this place becomes haunted by that earlier scene. We know what else is out there. Yeah. I also love that the waitress's hair is very similar to Betty's hair later in the reality. In real life, yeah. It's cool. Slick, man. Very slick. <laughs> So good. But yeah, she after seeing the name tag, after Rita sees the name tag that says Diane, she says, I think that's my name. Mm-hmm. I remember Diane Selwyn. Yep. And they look her up in the phone book, and they do indeed try to call. And dude, one of the most telling lines of dialogue here as um, Betty's dialing in, oh, it must be strange calling yourself. Mm. Awesome. Oh, Fucking so creepy. Um, talk about a crazy sequence. I know the mafia goes to Adam's house next, right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> oh my God, this dude. He's a massive I guy. fucking love this guy. Just coming in. He never says anything other than Adam, Adam, here, Adam. Like never, <laughs> is this Adam Kesher's house? Doesn't say shit. Just knocks both of them out like they are literally nothing to him. He's massive. He's fucking a wall. <laughs> Even Billy Ray Cyrus gets his old fucking block knocked off. Yeah. Don't break my jaw, my achy, breaky jaw. Oh, don't do it. So bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like he's not going to just fucking reach back and punches her off. She's on his shoulder. <laughs> knocks her straight off of him and then right back to Adam Kesher. <laughs> he's not there. He's in a flop house. Yeah, he's in... This is also such like Hollywood trope of like, now I'm in the seedy, dirty hotel with a neon sign. Yeah. But he gets the bad news that his bank account's been closed, his credit lines are shut down. He is just being fucking pursued to the ends of the earth by these guys. That's right. And uh, we meet meet, uh, his assistant, I guess, Cynthia. Right. Who, hey, what the fuck's wrong with you, man? Passing it. She's like, hey, you want a place to stay? You can come over here. Don't know what you're missing. And he's like, ugh, no. no. He's a fool. <laughs> he's what? He's a fool. He's an absolute fool. <laughs> <laughs> These fucking Hollywood types. Ah, you're not, you're not a fucking mover and shaker. I can't bang you. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I, it's unlikely directors bang their fucking help. Yeah, very yeah that never happens. That never happens. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Too funny, man. Yeah, Hollywood's just such a moral place in reality. Yeah, of course it is. So upstanding. And uh, she basically says to him, your mind has been shut off, and there's a person called the cowboy that wants to see you. And if I tell him the meeting is on, you have to go to the Beechwood Canyon, and there's a corral up there at the top. Will you meet him? Sure, Adam says. And Cynthia makes the offering, to which 
Adam passes on, and then she says, you don't know what you're missing. And we go back to Betty and Rita locating the address of Diane Selwyn on a map. Rita is obviously not sure about this, but Betty says that they'll be careful tomorrow, she says. We will go over there and we will find out. Mm-hmm. And then there's a knock on Betty's door, to which Betty reassures Rita that everything will be okay, and she answers the door, and we get this weird-ass woman named Louise. Gypsy-looking lady. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's something wrong in there. There's trouble here. What do you think about this? Dude, I, I am fascinated by it, but I, this is another moment where I'm like, I don't know who, who Luis would be other than just some aspect of like Betty's subconscious just knowing that this is a lie and like kind of like shaking against it. Yeah, I thought the same thing. I thought it must be some sort of representation of reality, so to speak. Intruding in, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. <clears throat> It's funny, it comes at the behest of a knock on a door. Right, right. Yeah, it's almost but like, you, you know, you ever been woken up by a knock on the door when you're dreaming? Oh, totally. Yeah. It's fucking horrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's the worst shake back to reality ever. I've had, uh-huh. I've had dreams literally form around the knocking in those seconds. Oh, weird. Yeah. That's like you're sitting weird. there dreaming and then there's this banging in the dream. The dream forms around the knocking rather quickly. And then you wake up and go, oh, fuck, somebody's knocking on my door. I thought I was just dreaming that I was in a place where somebody was knocking on the door. Right. Fucking wild. <laughs> Dude, another great part about this, too, is that Coco comes up and, and she's all like explaining it. Oh, I'm just here to bring pages pages to uh, Betty. And this is actually you know, th- that lady's niece. You know, Everything's fine. Like Totally ushers her away, keeps her from going inside. Doesn't really even let her look in because she tries to look in. She's like, no, I, I heard it was someone else right. in trouble. And she's trying to get a look at Rita, but they don't let her in at all. And she's completely ushered away from the door without ever intruding into this perfect little magical fantasy space. Like of all of the trouble of reality is still kept out. She managed to keep her away, but it was close. Very close. So Adam is driving at night, and he gets to the corral mentioned by Cynthia. He walks up uh, across some dirt, and then the light sort of flickers on, seemingly by itself. And we meet the cowboy. <laughs> the most charisma-less person in this entire movie. This is a great fucking scene. It is a great scene, though. The dialogue is Creepy. super interesting. Oh, yeah. yeah. A man's attitude. Um, yeah, you know... I, I like this scene a lot. I like I like a lot of what is said here. It's it's his outfit is is outrageous, oh, but it's, it's a direct contrast to Adam. The cowboy and Adam couldn't be more different. Right. right. One has an old fashioned way about him. One is probably much more conservative than the other one, um, and I mean that in, in a multifaceted way. I'm not talking right. straight politics here, but I bet I would be willing to bet that this old fashioned man of manners look you in the eye, I'm going to tell it to you like it is, I'm very honest, is a really direct counterpoint to Adam, who is full of shit. He's a director. He's aloof. Um, he <laughs> probably rarely says what he means. And the cowboy sees right through him. Right. And right. he hems him into a corner. And I like this. I like that he doesn't relent. Yeah, he, pushes the, he pushes it. You know, he says, um, I agree with what you said, truthfully, what I say. Like he tests him. Oh, that yep. man's attitude determines to a large extent how his life will be. So since you agree, you must be someone who does not care about the good life. How's that? Stop for a little second and think. Can you do that for me? Can you stop being a smart Alec? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. And he says, uh, okay, I'm thinking. No, you're not thinking. You're too busy being a smart Alec to be thinking. Now I want you to think and stop being a smart Alec. Can you do that for me? Look, where, where's this going? What do you want me to do? 
There's some there's sometimes a buggy. <laughs> so random. How many drivers does a buggy have? One. Let's say I'm driving the buggy, and if you want to fix your attitude, you can ride along with me. Okay. And that's when he just says, I want you to go back to work tomorrow. You are recasting the lead actress anyway. Audition many girls. When you see the girl that was shown to you earlier today, you will say, this is the girl. The rest of the cast can stay. That's up to you. But that lead girl is not up to you. You will see me one more time if you do good. You will see me two more times if you do bad. Good night. Oh, boy. That is menacing. It's fucking (laughs) cool, man. And I do believe that we see him two more times in, in the movie total. Do we? Like very, very briefly, yeah. Because there's that scene later on where he comes in, comes into uh, Diane, real Diane, uh, her bedroom, and says, "Time to wake up, pretty girl." And then we see a brief scene of him walking through the restaurant at the end too. We only see him two more times. Yeah, good Things catch. Did not turn out good. So we fade to black yet again, and, and this back is to the Hollywood sign. Back to it, baby. Back to Betty and Rita doing a read. Doing a script read of some dog shit soap opera dialogue. Right, exactly. But but what do we see here? Betty's crushing it. Absolutely. She's selling it. And Rita is the robotic, oh, I, I'm just reading it. I don't really know what to do. We know that's hilarious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, Betty's, Betty's passionate. Betty's into it. She sells it even though it's bad. And of course, this, this scene ends with Rita saying, oh, you are so good. Yep. Oh, thank you, darling. Mm-hmm. Awesome, man. This is great stuff. But um, they laugh, and then later Coco goes to see Betty and meets Rita. That's Coco wants a call to see Betty it. outside, right? She yeah. says, you're on call. She wants to know who is staying in their apartment. Betty explains that she's just staying for a couple of weeks. Says Rita's nice. Coco says, well, this is all horse pucky. Don't make me, <laughs> don't make me out to be a sucker. Louise Bonner said it, said that there is trouble in there. Well, some things, sometimes she's wrong, but then if there's trouble, get rid of it. <laughs> I'm David Lynch, and I approve this old person kookiness. I would like to get a line read of her uh, calling a behind a tuchus, if possible, but uh, this will do. Is that George Lucas? <laughs> it's very similar. I'm actually totally, whenever I do David Lynch, I'm 100% impersonating his character that he plays on Twin Peaks. Yeah. That's totally how he talks all the time. I got you. Well, <laughs> we know that Rita is Adam's mom. What do you think about the contrasting viewpoints of her versus reality versus dream? Yeah, that's, a, that's a, again, another like funny aspect. Like there, there are some people in this, like even Dan shows back up again in reality, it's like every single person she sees ends up playing a part within her dream. But Coco's one of the only ones who is an entirely formed character in her dream, and it is a completely different character in reality. Yeah. Um, and and I, I think that's really I, strange. I have an idea on this. Ooh, okay. I, I think that Coco's loyalty to Adam is clear. It's his mother. And Adam is the source of a lot of her problems. And Coco is cool cold almost to to diane later in the reality portion of the film and i think that rita excuse me and i think that diane betty has this feeling that the idealized version of coco would be this very welcoming force this maternal and welcoming force kind of looking right. like out that's for what her she, yeah like that's what she wants old hollywood to be that these people will take you in and, and guide you or that's just what she wants in general from the only real maternal figure we see in the film Oh, that's a good point. Right. Yeah. And then she doesn't get that. She gets cold sort of standoffishness or, or 
really, really what you see in Coco's eyes at the end of the movie as she looks upon Betty slash Diane is, oh, she had a good run though. Too bad. Mm-hmm. You kind know, just like that same, the same pity of like, ah, you tried and you didn't. Yeah. Make it and like, she, like she's seen it a hundred fucking times. Totally. Yeah. All the time. All the time. That was kind of my takeaway on that. Yeah. I like it. Thanks, pal. <laughs> you did good. A million points. Oh, buddy. thanks, buddy. <laughs> but um, Rita asks if everything's right. Betty says everything is A-OK. And then a car picks up Rita. Mm-hmm. Creepy men in sunglasses. Oh, I mean, a car picks up yeah, Betty. Sorry. Did it again. <laughs> um, Done. Did boy, again. this scene, man. Dude, this is excellent. I mean, this is also just Naomi Watts being fucking fantastic. Yeah. Uh, we haven't really talked about her, man. We we haven't done a you know movie with Naomi Watts, and this was nope. kind of her first really big big movie. She'd been in a couple movies before this, but this is the one that you know I think really raised up her profile. She got she got the leading role in The Ring, I think, not too long after this. Um, and she kind of what I think was interesting about her being cast in this movie, and she talked about it some was like. I was still a fairly struggling actress at this point. Like mm-hmm. I identified with this character. That That's why we got to I see her sweet, sweet body. Sweet. Probably body. haven't seen it since, have we? Nope. I don't know. I don't I'm just making that up. Think, I'm not sure. Actually, hmm. I, I I'm just being a creep into this. But no, she, into this is research. this is a great moment where she really turns it on and turns me on. Absolutely. So to speak. <laughs> but of course. <laughs> but no, I mean, this is where we go from. The 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 nineteen fifties Betty, so to speak, to the holy shit, this lady is a great actress. <laughs> what yeah, a what totally. a difference. What a what a change. We get a lot we, we see into her personality deeply here, I feel like. We f- we get this impression like she's very capable all of a sudden. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean and I think it was a really cool choice to show her reading this same dialogue, which is also very short. They go through it. Uh, her and Rita, when they're reading it, they go through the whole thing in like 15 seconds. It's just pretty standard. Oh, dramatic. Oh, you're my father's friend, but you, you're after me and you want me. Oh, this desire thing. And it's like very cartoonish and soap opera But in, in this scene, she pulls this whole other angle out of it. And of course, this is what a great actor or actress can do. Like yep. the same words, the same things on the page, you can give it an entirely different tone, an entirely different feeling and pull a whole nother meaning out of it with your performance. And that's what she does. Like this is her imagining herself as a fucking Oscar caliber actor. Yeah, absolutely. This is good stuff. And, and I especially love especially pulling it off for this fucking leathery face, Tom Jones knockoff. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. It's long in the tooth. Good looking guy, but long in the tooth. Not bad, yeah, not bad looking dude, but he's that he's got that that slimy way about him though. Where he's just like, yeah, hey, come on, baby. He, you know what's funny? He does, but he hesitates to put his hand on her, and she puts her she puts the hand on him. Oh yeah, absolutely. I thought that was That's awesome. True. What a cool, another cool twist. Which is he's being respectful. <laughs> he doesn't want to be. He knows it's just sort of a read, and yeah, they're getting close, and yeah, whatever. But she turns it on, absolutely. and he just finds himself wrapped up in it this is one of those mm-hmm. she's elevating my performance type of moments oh totally it's cool man it is really cool i mean she goes all the way to tears flowing she initiates the kiss she pulls him in uh, yep. and, and brings actual drama to this pretty limp ass dialogue yeah absolutely and what what why why do we what's the scene doing i think like we already said i mean i think it's her imagining having this capacity for acting, having this ability to, to drill into the, the content and pull out this great performance that dazzles everybody in the room. Yeah. 
it's funny. You almost feel bad for the, not the director, but I, I would guess it's the producer, the older gentleman. Right, right. Because even in the very next scene, you know, it's that the, I don't think it's her manager, is it? No, Maybe it's a it's a it's a casting director that that's was there right, just right. for like help. She's like a big shot. She's not casting the movie. She just wanted to sit in for the read, I guess. Right. And she's saying that this guy's kind of you know it's another just harsh Hollywood Crap. moment of like oh yeah. yeah we just sat there and did all this you know we're talking and we did the audition and we read everything with him but also as soon as we leave the room he's washed up two he's face not doing anything. Two that movie's, yeah, that movie's not going to get made yep. yeah totally. two face shit man. so shitty so much of this movie is built around the this two face concept I mean the fucking people have two names. And think about how nice and sweet and warm this this producer was. Like he's an older, sweet, yep. actually kind person, and a Hollywood just couldn't give less of a fuck. Correct. Yeah, it's moving past him. Again, this might be also a representation of these. Uh, these this this is almost like what we saw between Adam and the cowboy. That's true. Yeah. Right. This old versus new type of thing. Totally. Yeah. But um, yeah, you know, we're doing Woody Cat's favor, blah, blah, blah. The cat's terrible. God, terrible. <laughs> it's just brutal, these chicks. Poor old Fuwali. <laughs> he was nice. He seemed so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he doesn't matter. He's not on the up and up. He's not relevant. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love Wally, too. I want to. I was married to him for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> I am truly a soulless fucking viper. <laughs> <laughs> and then we go to the casting call where Adam is doing his thing. Dude, I, I was reading a little, one of the things I, I was reading about the movie, I can't remember which article, but I, I think it was a really cool point they made of how this shot, when we cut over to the studio where Adam is already shooting and doing these auditions, the way it's framed is so cool, how it, it starts out close up on this woman singing, yeah, it's cool. and you actually think it's like a performance somewhere, and then you realize, oh, they're in a recording booth, it's like a studio that they're recording in, oh, and then you pull out even further, no. It's a movie set. Like these layers of deception Correct. of the of reality is not what you think it is. The thing you're looking at isn't what it seems. Yep. I think that's such a cool visual way of showing up. Yeah, we do we do that a lot in this movie, <laughs> especially when we go oh, to yeah. Silencio. 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 <clears throat> and then, um, of course, we have the first meeting between Adam and our girl. Yeah, which is a pretty much a non-meeting. I mean doesn't really even say anything directly to no her. there's there is a there is this moment though which is oh, yeah that's got to be the girl like ultimately that's what he would prefer but he's stuck yep and the, uh, what's funny too is the girl who does come in who is the chosen girl that's been you know handed down by these mysterious executives she is good and cute she's sure, fine like sure. she's perfectly fine there's nothing wrong with her, but she's just been arbitrarily chosen. You know, I think that's the true, the true like dagger in Betty's heart is the 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 sense of there's no reason behind it. Like, well, why her, not me? We even look kind of similar because like, you don't know anybody. Yeah, there's that. But I, I, to her, I think it feels like just these impossible to understand machinations behind everything, and it all seems arbitrary and it all seems senseless, and that's just like just infuriates her and hurts her even more. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. But that's the moment. This, there's a, this is a moment for her when she isn't picked. It's pretty devastating to her. Right. Like right. she doesn't even have a chance. To, I mean, it's over. She doesn't no. even do it. That's it. Yeah. Doesn't get to audition. Doesn't get to do anything. Adam just has to look, you know, we even see the, the executive Angelo Badalamenti, he appearing over the shoulder of the guy who's there. And he's like, so what do we want to do? We audition another one. 
no, this is the girl. Like, it's no enthusiasm at all. Mm -hmm. He knows he just has to fucking say it. He has to agree. And he's staring straight at Betty like, well, shit, I wish I could have auditioned her. Yeah, that that is a great choice. (laughs) (laughs) But then um, the ladies get on on something else, and they are deciding to go to Diane Selwyn's place. They do. And, dude, another weird thing. I want to see what your take on this is. What about the people when they first get there – the the men in suits and the sunglasses again taking stuff out of the apartments and leaving like they try to not be seen by them either I mean, um, is this, are these still just the people pursuing Rita at this point I suppose yeah it, it's funny the way they decide to do this because they almost make it feel like it's a false fear because they're like exactly. she's like oh no they're just helping him put stuff in the trunk nothing to worry about here right 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 but they they have that whole moment of her just being Totally paranoid, totally afraid. Absolutely, yeah. I would imagine that I, if we go on the assumption that we are dealing with a fantasy of Betty, yeah, maybe, maybe it, we're just seeing because the intrepid, brave person here is Betty. Rita's the tentative one, and one thing you'll notice with these two women, the whole movie is that there's always one layer of resistance from Rita, and then she capitulates to Betty always in every decision. I don't want to do that. No, we should. Okay. I don't want to do that. No, we yeah. should. Okay. No, I don't want to. We shouldn't go in. Okay. I don't. Which, you shouldn't have to sleep on that couch. No, no, it's okay. No, you shouldn't. Okay. Right. Their Which whole really relationship. Does, their whole relationship it, is like that. Yeah. And it, it speaks to this whole like narcissistic side of Betty that I don't think she even understands about herself. Like, I feel like that's the interesting part about watching a, a dream emerging from the subconscious of this character as viewers. Or even a fantasy. Is, a fantasy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it serves the same purpose of us as viewers. We can see a side of it that even they are not seeing, even as it, as they're projecting it and experiencing it, because she doesn't see how much of a controlling, manipulative narcissist she is. It's all about her. She does, like she is not interested in truly knowing and understanding and valuing Rita. She's just like, oh no, you're like my you're fucking side piece arm candy. I don't I don't care. Just do what I say. Maybe, maybe, but. But in fantasy, aren't we all sort of narcissist and self-centered if we're dealing with a fantasy? It's ours alone. Well, it, it's true, but I don't think – this is also not – I think that's the difference between dream and fantasy is that the dream is something that emerges whereas a fantasy is something you're, you're kind of in control of and you're deciding for yourself. And I think fantasy seeps into the dream, but I think this – because it's a dream is more honest. It's more honest than she would even be in a fantasy Hmm. Okay. So does that mean you believe that that the Betty character slash Diane is obviously a bad person? I mean, she ends off by putting a hit out on her friend. <laughs> I think she is a worser person than she is willing to admit. Um, like, I, For one, we see a part, big part of the stream is the blame for all of her problems and her her lot in life is outward it's on everybody else it's on the the big machine of hollywood and my friend betraying me and it's everybody else has destroyed my life there's very little like self-reflection going on here yep i agree with that take um that is uh yeah it's it's hardly surprising i uh yeah yeah narcissism (laughs) the narcissists yeah i'm trying to think of that part of it right i I only say that because i think we as a society throw that around real loose these days everyone's a narcissist yeah yeah and i don't even think like i wouldn't say like oh she's a clinical like not like has a narcissistic personality disorder maybe she does but she's just you might be on something i mean 
I, I wouldn't say either is impossible, but I just see her as more of a like I would imagine. I think if you if go to this, Hollywood to be an actor, you have some narcissism in you. <laughs> you, know, you got a little bit, yeah. At least. You got a dose. <laughs> Sorry, you want to see yourself on a right? You want to see yourself on an eighty foot screen? You gotta, you gotta be a little narcissistic to want that. Yeah, uh, and that's not terrible. It's nothing wrong. No, actors, man, um, they want that. They, they, you know, there's. It's not even maybe narcissism's again. People who look for validation and and want to be liked and want, you know, I I have some of that in me. I do a fucking podcast. I have 300 episodes where I'm hoping people listen to my wonderful words and like I have something so fucking great to give the world or something. Like I'm still doing this shit. The ball's (laughs) on me, you know? So I get it. We're stuck in Dean's dream. Oh, fuck. (laughs) Dude, I can tell you that Brunette would be in it. Ooh, hell yeah. But anyway. I think, see, I just want to say real quick, like I think if this were a daydream fantasy that Betty was – in full control of, I think she would probably paint herself as a better person. Um, like, and I mean, obviously, like here she's happy and successful, but I, I'd imagine she would even play up the relationship between her and Rita as even healthier in a way. But I think because it's a dream, it's almost more honest, and it gets down to the root of what she would truly be happiest with, and her like, like kind of the controlling side of herself with Rita just being a blank slate that she is practically just in charge of. Mm, interesting, yeah. I was wondering what your what your take on that would be. Like, is it would you call would you call the moments between the two women a, a poor representation of Rita? Is is Rita not? Is does Rita seem like a bad person? Does Rita seem like a lesser person than Betty, if we're going on Betty's dream. Um, Rita, the one. No, nope, I said it right this time. You did say it right. Okay. <laughs> I was to be sure. No, does does Rita seem like a lesser person? If we're, in, in other words, it, I feel like what you're basically saying to 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 not mince words here is that in this interpretation of what Betty is dreaming, that Rita seems like sort of a lesser empty person. She has less to offer than yeah, and that's uh, yeah, and that's definitely. a consequence of Betty's dream. Yes, yeah, exactly. Which is funny because I personally find Rita more compelling and interesting because <laughs> she's mysterious, right? But that's just my right, personal right. taste. That is no, I mean, like, yeah, like right? I, I think I'm just thinking about it as far as like how Betty perceives her. Sure, sure. Um, and as just mostly somebody with. She's she's beautiful and yep. and sweet yep. and vulnerable mm-hmm. and that's kind of it though. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's not much more to her because she's she's been wiped clean. She has no memory. She doesn't even like we were saying. It's not even a, a, a the kind of amnesia of like oh I know where I was born and who my family is. I just don't remember what happened the past you know week or two from this accident or something. It's like no, her whole identity is just wiped away. Yeah, absolutely. I think part of that comes from, again, the guilt of what she's done. I, I think she would take it back if she could. But um, yeah. but also going back to tabula rasa, so to speak, right? Indeed. Yeah. Anyway. Dude, this, so, this um, fucking scene. Eesh. This scene's well, so get a, intense. So intense. You know, and they briefly talk to the neighbor because they, they find out the actual address. They go up to the apartment, and it's not... Diane, it's a neighbor, and she says, which is she says it so casually, it's so fucking strange. We switch apartments sometimes. Mm. Mm. I'm like, huh? What kind of fucking weirdo does that? You switch apartments. Yep. Okay. That's fucking bizarre, you freak. But anyways, um, well, yeah, she says, you know, we have to think back to the reality of what's happening here, right? I think mm-hmm. this is the where a breakup occurred, right? Totally. Yeah. yeah. Switch and, apartments. You know, 
<laughs> so fucking silly. Um, but no, and like Diane, you know, she she says that Diane has been hadn't been around in a couple of days, and she still has some of my things. But uh, you know, okay, you can go. She's actually down there at seventeen, mm. and they head down. Uh, Betty goes into the window to unlock the door, and they walk into a reeking pungent house. I love when she opens the door and. And she's already has her hand on her over her nose and mouth. Yeah, man, this scene is fucking wild. Oh, it's so creepy, creepy, scary, um, and just really well done. The, yeah. the corpse, man. Oof. Ugh. And of looks, course, Rita freaks out. Betty doesn't. Oh, it looks so nasty. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, it looks so fucking real. Ugh, not good. Already just been decomposing in there. Yeah, yeah, not good. And um, she dead. She dead. Whoever that woman is. Whoever that woman is. <laughs> yeah. What did, What is this part of the dream? Oh, I think it's her reckoning with the truth of knowing what she's going to do. Of knowing, you know, but she's already, I think we got to remember too that the, I think chronologically, the dream, you know. Is real life after Diane, everything has already happened. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think real life Diane goes to sleep after the hit has already been completed. And this is all just the fever dream of guilt and desire and sorrow being all mixed together. And she knows she's already on the edge of suicide and is almost imagining walking in on her own corpse, which is wicked dark. So you think you think the hit was a success? I do. Interesting. You don't? Um, hmm. Because the, remember, the blue key was the signifier that the hit was complete. Oh, right, right. Of course. is sitting dumb, on dumb. her table. Yeah, of course, of course, of course. Indeed, yeah. Indeed. Yep, of course. I don't know what, what I was thinking here. Because I was trying to think of where this happened in the, in the, you know, in the, in the timeline. But, yeah, of course, the, the plugies on it, which is the triggering effect of the whole fucking thing. Right. I think it's after. I think she sees that blue key, and it would, you know, jumping way and then, ahead. But she sees... Then, Breaks See, it down. Yeah. Right. Then goes to sleep and then, you know, has very troubled sleep. Because, you know, that's another thing, just talking about dreams in general. I don't know about you. Like, I feel like I have the most vivid dreams for one, when I'm just taking a short nap, not sleeping for the night. If I only sleep for like an hour or something like that and take a nap, that's when I dream really intensely. And especially if I'm uncomfortable or physically or like emotionally, like if I've had a really hard day or something like that, or if it's really hot in my room, that's when I dream intensely. Like if I'm feeling fine and you know my room's comfortable and dark and quiet, I, I don't really have dreams. I remember I wake up just fine. <laughs> I don't really dream. So I can imagine you definitely her dream. Being, you just don't remember. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. If you're an REM sleep, you're dreaming, but I don't, I don't, I really rarely, rarely remember dreams anymore. I would say I go years between dreams. Mm, yeah. I don't remember them a ton either. I do occasionally. It's, it's pretty rare. I, as a kid, I feel like I used to wake up remembering dreams all the time, good or bad. Just, I would, I would dream a lot. Uh, nowadays, I feel like the last dream I had that I can even remember was two or three years ago. Wow. That's intense. It's been a while. Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> like I just kind of stopped. Well, back to the film. We have, uh, they find the woman in the bed, of course. And then we hard cut to Rita. I love the shot of them coming out in the, the, uh, 
double oh, exposed yeah. image there. Not exposed, so but good. doubling of the image. Where they're all like, it, it's kind of like, it, it's kind of almost like the Blade Runner 2049 scene where mm-hmm. the, the images of their faces and their hands are almost crisscrossing and blending over one another. Yeah, it's, um, it's a very representation. It's a, it's a major representation of they are two people. <laughs> right, and, and two people whose identities are getting blurred together. Yeah, and, and it's a hint for the audience, like something is amiss here. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, we go home and there's some hair cutting. And of course, Betty stops Rita from chopping all her hair off and just says, let me let me help you. And she mm-hmm. gets her a nice blonde wig. You know, one thing just dawned on me um, that I hadn't really thought about that as far as the, the let's say, the plot of the dream, that sure. Rita is somebody who's pursued by these people trying to kill her. I think within the plot of the dream itself, them finding the body was interpreted as they killed my friend. Like the people who are out to get me also have already killed her and I now need to change my appearance. Um, and that didn't, I didn't really think about that until just now because that's kind of, there is a plot within the dream that is not real, but the dream itself has this story. I think that's why she starts to try and cut her hair and wants to look different because she still feels pursued. Oh yeah, she definitely feels pursued. I think that's, She's trying to hide from these people. She maybe she thinks they killed the wrong person accidentally. Right, right. If we're going on, you know, Rita being a person and having thoughts, not just a <laughs> right. manifestation of Becky, uh, Becky, Betty's dreams. <laughs> Becky, <laughs> Woo, the names tonight. <clears throat> but yeah, no, she puts on the wig, and they when they stand next to each other in the mirror, I'm like, oh. God, like this is, it reminded me of Vertigo uh, when, you know, Jimmy Stewart's character is all insistent on wear this, get your hair done like this. Like he's trying to make her look exactly like the the version of the woman he was in love with before she died. Mm, creepy shit. So, so creepy and controlling. And then, um, well, time for the, be- is it time for the best scene of the movie? Well, Are we here? well then. Oh, oh, <laughs> dude! How fucking casual does Rita just? Yeah, okay, I'll sleep in your bed. Yoink! Towel off, butt ass naked. Hop on in bed. Yeah. Like, do women just do this? Is that you guys just completely chill with that? Yeah, it's pretty I awesome. That's that's <laughs> pretty great. <laughs> I mean, if we're being honest here, it's pretty pretty amazing. spectacular. Uh, but dude, this is this scene in, in truth, like all jokes aside, like this is the real heart of, of Betty's sadness and, and, and guilt. Correct. hundred like, percent. What she, what she truly wants here is to love, uh, Rita, AKA real life Camilla. Like this is what, this is the spawning point of all of this guilt and why she is so sad and alone. And the fact that she even says to her, which is bizarre within the dream world that she's like, I'm in love with you. It's like. And of course, I mean, yeah, you can fall in love with somebody because of how attracted you are to them and, and you know, just you have a, a chemistry. But it also at the same time, if you step back out of it for a second, you're like, you guys have known each other for like three days. And and she's also a blank slate of a person. She she doesn't even know her own name. Like, what are you in love with? In truth, she's saying, I love you to Camilla. That's what she wants to say, that I'm in love with you to her and have this moment. Yeah, but... Well, what we don't know at this point in the movie in her first viewing is they already have a relationship and we're kind of going back on it. And right. She does love her and she is admitting it, you know? Exactly. And always has. That's the heart of it all. Indeed. Um, that's why I think it's interesting to, to have the underpinnings of a love story, right? Yeah. Or maybe even yeah. overtly it's a love story. Because 
there's, you know, there you could say is David Lynch trying to sell tickets by having two beautiful women, women be very intimate and have a lesbian scene on camera. And, you know, it's, it's, it is, uh, it's, it's sensual and beautiful and titillating. But if, if, I guess if you want to cheapen it and say that that's the case, cause you know, people, at least nowadays, people are all like, well, does that sex scene even do anything for the movie? Cause apparently people don't like sex anymore. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> I always think about it as these very intimate moments of breast grabbing and kissing and necking and stuff like this and just, you know, intimate touching and kissing and lovemaking is we see it quite, quite graphically because I think it's a very visceral experience for Betty. Yeah, and I she agree. truly did love Rita, which is why I think later in the movie, the sex scene is equally important because we see it. It has, it, it is, it's, it's, has inklings of being very sexy, but it's also in a shittier place. It's not in the quote dream place, right? It's in the other place and it is a dirtier place. It is, it doesn't go well. It ends poorly. It, it has, it, that, what a great, what a great indication of the desperations of the end of a relationship, right? Versus totally. the idealized yeah. versions of the beginning of a relationship. That's right. That's, and, see, that's that's the true thing that Betty's lusting after is the sweet beginnings. Correct. Of a fresh and start in Hollywood. Everything. A fresh new love. All of everything yes. is new. Like that's why that's, this ah. scene. That's why this sex scene and the other contrasting sex scene and all of the tension between the two is super important to the movie which goes beyond mystery thriller and wacky dream interpretation and weirdo surreal David Lynchian shit to this true love story, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and it's a big contrast here. And you know, it's, you know, you can, it's, there is the, the buildup of this whole thing is, makes this a very passionate and tantalizing scene. Yeah. Right. And it's full of possibility. Correct. And the music is very sad. Right. But we don't know why yet. Exactly. Right, we have to remember exactly. we haven't just, seen the movie yet. We don't know why yet, but we are going. God, that's really weird. Mm-hmm. But still, it's, it's that juxtaposition. It is. It is exactly, and that's how he keeps you off balance. That's how Lynch keeps you off balance. It's totally. slick, man. I have I to be careful because you know we're doing this live, and I'm showing clips. I, I clearly don't want to show nudity on a fucking YouTube clip. Ah, you know, technically, you, uh, nudity is not disallowed on YouTube. Mm-hmm. There's a ton. It, like maybe I don't know because it's a copyrighted film that might be different. But it's definitely copyrighted film. <laughs> there is a lot of bizarre, actually like full nudity clips on YouTube. I feel like that that used to be a problem, but they don't seem to police it anymore. Yeah, yeah, and it's you know I love I love it. It's it's shot close. It's a super tight shot on kissing. You know that that's a very intimate thing, right? Hookers, right. I don't kiss. I'll fuck you, but I'm not going to make out with you. That's too intimate. It's funny, right? I know I'm joking, but there's something to that. And then, you know, like I said, later in the scene, it's, it has a bit more of a gratuitous nature to it in that it is a contrast to the scene here. And I think it matters. Right. Because that is, it's the tenderness that, that Betty wants. Yep. Good shit, man. And dude, my, my theory about Rita waking up and just saying silencio, silencio, silencio. I mean, she's almost like robotic in her saying it. I feel like it's the fantasy cracking apart. Yep, like, I concur. That it, that, that it like the center can't hold anymore. It's starting to spin out. Maybe she's getting close to waking up and even your fantasy is starting to kind of collapse on in on itself. And it is a very aware 
that it's not real. And that's when she starts saying, Silencio, we need to go to this place. We need to go. And this is like the most direct and harsh with Betty that Rita ever gets. Mm-hmm. She's like, we have to go. Get up. We have to get out where we go now. Even, yeah. though, even Betty's like objecting. Like, it's two in the morning. And she's like, no, we need to go there. Yeah. I it's mean, she tied. looks utterly terrified too. She does. When I say she, I mean, I mean Rita. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. They, they hitch a cab and head on down there. They sure they do. do. The, the shot of the camera, uh, you know, the, the, I think it's like the dolly shot of the camera going up to the door of the club <laughs> Silencio. So good and creepy. Like the, it feels like an ending is coming. That's uh, it's amazing. The 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 trash in the on, in the in the lot, right? Yeah. It's a, it's a steady cam at first. It's kind of bouncing, but then it rolls. It's fucking cool. <laughs> in they so go. <laughs> Now, this whole scene, it is probably the part of the movie. You know, it's funny. I actually really like the scene, but I also feel like this is the part of the movie which is saying, okay, do you guys understand that nothing is as it seems, that it's facsimile, smoke and mirrors, it's it's full of shit? Don't believe what you see. Totally. Right? Don't trust anything. The woman that passes out during the singing. <laughs> what do you think of that? I, as far as her collapsing, mm. I'm not, I'm not totally sure. I mean, it's another one of the, you know, it's another moment of just falsehood, you know, realizing that it's, it's been an illusion that she was never actually singing. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I'm not, the collapsing, like maybe again, that, that, that the illusion can't be sustained forever. Yeah. I think there's something to that. Um, for sure. I also think there's something to the song continuing after the singer goes down feels to me like we're seeing how Hollywood may use you, right? And True. have you Haul and have you your talent after you're gone type of thing. Like it's yeah. like it takes everything from you to where you fall down, yet Hollywood still endures. It still has your talent, right? Long after an actress is dead or a singer is dead, right? That that, that still exists. We still have it. And it may right. have I mean, killed you to get here and to give it to us. It's wild. And hell, dude. shit. Even if you get murdered, we'll fucking make a hologram of you for Coachella. <laughs> like, Jesus <fuck>. Christ. <laughs> Just hold on to your eternal image forever. Yeah. And both women cry here, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now that I, I found super interesting. And like, there's even that moment where where Betty starts shaking and like yeah. quaking uncontrollably and Rita is like comforting her. Almost yep. like, you, like you have to see this. You have to see the truth. Yeah. And that's what's happening here. This is the culmination of the things are not what they seem. Exactly. Right. And that's, and it's, fall, it's, it's quickly breaking apart for her. And, you know, do you know the song that she is singing there? Yeah. It's in Spanish. Roy, Roy Orbison. Roy, Roy Orbison crying, all about crying for the lover who has moved on from you. Indeed. Indeed. But this is when she, Betty opens her purse and for the first time sees the blue cube, the box inside of it. The box. And, the box mm-hmm. and they rush home they they each go head home with some real purpose uh bringing the box inside and they go to get the key i suppose it makes sense that we have the shaking and the crying because this is the scene leading up to the end is really the end for betty it is the yeah. dream the dream is now over and i find it super interesting that once they get back they walk into the bedroom together betty places the box on the bed and we pan over to Rita taking the the purse down out of the closet that has the key in it. And when we pan back to the bed, Betty's just gone. Yep. Like has utterly vanished. Uh, Like I almost think that she's already in the process of waking up. Like she's already shaken out of the dream reality. 
and Rita's left to open the box on her own. And what a great... Now, this is prime David Lynch excellence that I love. The the shot of her cracking open the box and we just drop into it. It's cool. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, pretty wild, man. And then the box topples to the floor. It does. But it's laying in the same position, by the way, as the dead girl. Yeah, she is. She's like the exact same pose. Creepy. So creepy. And then we see our girl. And she looks disheveled, doesn't she? Dude, less she's kempt. looking less kempt. And also, am I weird for... Um, I kind of am into it. She's kind of hot, a little disheveled. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a little bit of bedhead about her. She's beautiful, sexy, hot, the whole nine yards. She's fucking Naomi yeah, Watts. What are you going to do? Absolutely. But I kind of, I almost like her with the, uh, with the unkempt hair. Yeah, I get it. It's good. It's good. And we're in this place. We're in this, in this, in this home. And we see the woman come over and she's her getting neighbor. her stuff. Right. But neighbor? Yeah. Picking up her shit. Mm-hmm. And then we Diane. go to... Obviously, this is there's a sense of dread in this whole thing. The oh, coffee, yeah. we make the coffee, but then we get the the next sex scene, which is very different, much brighter. Right. Couch is much less sexy. Lighting is oh. not as good. <laughs> and yeah, remember too, like this is already the blue key is already there on her coffee table, even when she goes to answer the door for her neighbor coming in. Correct. Um, it's like a, that it, the hit had already happened. She'd gone to sleep napping you know fitfully and then waking up to this and then we get kind of some intercutting from from flashbacks a lot of her i think really the rest of the movie chronologically happens with just her alone in her apartment and she's thinking back on all of these of course and then she walks with the robe she walks towards the couch and then she's in her jean shorts and she just climbs over the couch onto rita but now we're dealing with diane and camille i believe Indeed. This is Diane and Camilla. Ah, Camilla. Sahat. Ah, oh, yeah. Ridiculous. Sahat for a second, and until she's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, this is over. We can't do this anymore. And mm. that's when uh, Betty, or well, I'm already fucking up the names now, Diane starts to get more aggressive. That's right. Yep. And Diane goes to see Adam teaching somebody yeah. how to be in a scene. This is creepy director shit right here. Oh, dude. Don't do sure. this, dude. Definitely don't do this. Yeah. Oh, you just got to do one continuous motion like this. Yeah. <laughs> got a dick on me. <laughs> just give that hog a squeeze, you know, for the scene. <laughs> Kill the lights. <laughs> so gross. And yeah. the actor who's supposed to be in the scene just standing right next to him. I'm like, you really? You don't want to just let him you know, talk, to the, talk to the actual actor who's going to be in the scene about what he's supposed to do? You got to sit there and smooch on the starlet. Yeah. Ah, you're gross. You're gross. Yeah. Then there's this moment where this, um, the, 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 sh- the shot of, the shot of Camilla looking at Diane <laughs> while she's got her head on the shoulder of Adam. That's, man, that's so intense. Oh, that's so brutal. So intense, man. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. So awful. Uh, and, you know, I do think one interesting thing about the, I guess we could call it the reality section of the movie, you know, the part where after she's woken up and she's going through all of these events, uh, is that I do still think there are times where she is a completely unreliable narrator. And some of the stuff that we see on screen presented to us is still not actual reality, that it's her interpretation of the reality and her imagining things even further like what uh, at times uh like for one for me the big one later on is when 
when she goes to the restaurant where where uh, I keep wanting to call her Rita, but where Camilla and Adam are going to announce their engagement, and that other woman comes over. I think it's the woman who was chosen uh, for the movie in her dream comes over and whispers into Camilla's ear, says something to her, and then they kiss in in front of her and look at her. I don't think that actually happens. I think that's a manifestation of like her jealousy. That like she probably came over and whispered something to her in her ear, and that was probably it. But with with um, Diane being as like rapidly jealous and just so broken up about this and paranoid and suspicious of everybody, I think it's her imagining that oh she's probably kissing her too. She's probably you know lusting with her, and it's more that I can't have. And they look at her tauntingly. It's like I think some of that is probably not fully real either. Hmm. I um why why do you think that? Just because of how where we've been so far of seeing the reality she wants to see, you know, that's been basically all the movie we've gotten so far is like her subconscious, her imaginings of all of these things. And I think some of it is just so heightened in the reality section that it doesn't quite strike me as real. Hmm. Okay. I think it does happen and I think it's the culmination of the worst possible outcome for her. I think she's upset about Adam and I think she's upset about Adam, but I think the other girl is a backbreaker for her because she wants to be that girl so fucking bad. Like, I don't think she, I I know she cares. I know she, I know she does care that Adam's involved with her and they're going to announce an engagement and stuff. But, but the fact that she had the moments she had with her, right? We know they had a relationship. We saw an idealized version of it in the dream. The fact that this other girl, especially the one that got the part, <laughs> is the one kissing her. I think that was just too much. For, I think that was really the major breaking point for her. Because right. I see weirdos in Hollywood doing this. Like I see Adam having no issue with his kiss. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Because, but I, I, she just still strikes me as such a person who is so damaged and broken and and suspicious of everyone that she that she. I mean, we even do get that scene in when she's in her apartment making coffee. And she looks over and sees Camilla standing there and is like, Camilla, you, you, made, you came back to me. And then we watch her face drop as like the you know, illusion of her disappears again. Like she's seeing her in front of her, even though she's not actually there. And that's, this is the reality section of the movie. Right. Yeah. So what you're saying is it's not unprecedented, which is true. So, yeah, yeah I mean, either way. I've... Either way, it's just piling onto her shit day. Yeah. <laughs> Regardless. And, um... Yeah, because, I mean, we might as well just go from here, right? Because them getting there, her body language, the way she walks, she walks with such a... Well, we should probably talk about her getting picked up in the limo. Because, I mean, I know we've talked about these parallels already, but she gets picked up in the limo, the weird parallel. She gets up there, and we we already see this unraveling. Everything that she ever wanted is kind of falling apart. She's only oh, getting other- She's only getting small roles. She's not getting big roles. She's getting essentially things that she is given by Camilla. Right, right. And the other quick aspect of this I want to mention too is like I I think she interprets Camilla inviting her to this thing, you know, into the engagement announcement, this party, uh, as hostile, as like almost like look what I have. But I think it in truth, like in truth, you know, it, it's Camilla still just trying to be a friend and trying to involve her. Like, she's like, hey, where, where have you been? Are you okay? You are coming, right? Like, it sounds like an actual friend just being kind of concerned and wanting to keep her in her life and worried about her. But I think at this point, you know, Diane just interprets everything as as hostile, as as you are lording this over me. You are, 
taking more things away from me and just you know just super resentful <laughs> is what i get the feeling of yeah i but i but i but i don't think she's innocent in this though I, in no, other words i don't think this is all on betty i feel like a lot of this i feel like some of it is that right like either that or think- she's just tone deaf like if you don't if you're dealing with with an ex that you know still has a lot of charged feelings about you and you want to bring them around this and and play lovey dove with this guy and then kiss this girl i think there's i think that is in my opinion, I almost feel like that goes with the entirety of the movie, which is this Hollywood sort of, I don't really care about your feelings anymore type of thing, because this is where I am. Like, I think it actually works in the narrative of Hollywood, and here is where I am, and here is what it is. And and in being completely obtuse to the feelings of those people around you, even people you used to care about. You know what I'm saying? I'm I like not saying it. she deserves yeah. to be killed. <laughs> no, right. But I think she's I like also I, a victim of the Hollywood machine as well, so to speak. Totally. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, see, I see your point, but I, 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 I guess my interpretation overall of Diane and, and what's going on with her is more of one, is more individualized, like it's more in her head. And it's because of her mistreatment in a way by Hollywood and her lack of the opportunities and her not getting what she wants. But I think she just internalizes that stuff so, so badly and, and lets it take a hold of her. And, you know, like we were saying earlier, like she blames everything outwardly. It's everybody else's fault that she didn't get a part. It's everybody else's fault that she isn't noticed in a star yet. And, and I think there's this, I think there's an aspect of it of you came to Hollywood bright and shiny and young and when it wasn't the fantasy that you always thought it would be and it didn't start to play out, that alone, not even just Hollywood's machinations as a pretty heartless place, but that fantasy not being what you wanted and the reality being much colder has just jaded her and made her the suspicious, crazy or paranoid, vicious person that she becomes. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I think you're lower on, I mean, we, we see a lot of it, but I feel like... Hmm. I think I, mean, I think it's, I, I think it's interesting that we have very somewhat different interpretations of of uh, Betty slash Diane as a person. Yeah, I I mean again, she's she put a contract out on this lady, so there's that, right? <laughs> right. I, I'm not going to walk myself around that. I'm not going to moral. I'm not going to give her the benefit of the doubt too much on that whole thing. Um, but I think I think what happens here is we have a situation where this girl wins this dance, gets an opportunity, goes to Hollywood, has this life, meets this beautiful brunette, gets involved with her romantically, they fall in love. And for whatever reason, which we don't actually see, she never quite makes it. And that is basically 95% of the people that go to Hollywood, right? So she's probably just another person who's not going to make it. And um, it definitely breaks her. And I think you are right. I think she sees things... I think she's. I think she reads into a lot of a lot of different things, and as a result of reading into those things, it heightens things like jealousy and envy, no question. But I also think that her partner here, her ex partner, I don't know how much time has passed. Is it has enough time passed for there to be a reasonable conclusion that your friend should maybe that your friend ought not to have feelings for you and be disturbed by you getting lovey-dovey with Adam and then lovey-dovey with this other girl. I don't know. But the fact that she is and you don't see it is on you as well. 
That's right? true. Yeah, that is true. If you ever considered yourself somebody who loved and cared about this person, wouldn't you see the way she's being adversely affected by this entire thing and not have her come and watch it? Because it flies in the face. If, you, if you've been intimate with her and you know her, you know all of her hopes and all of her dreams. And with you slipping away from her, thus everything is slipping away from her. And that's not your responsibility, Right. Right? It's not Camilla's responsibility to fucking carry Diane for her whole life. But at the same time, right. I almost feel like you're not, I, I feel like you're being kind of harsh. I, not you, Callous, Matt. Yeah. But I think that you're not, I think you're being, and I think we're seeing, I mean, she's marrying fucking Adam for Christ's sakes. That tells me something about her character immediately. He's a, he's a fucking ding dong. Mm-hmm. And very. I, she she wants to just climb the Hollywood ladder. Correct, correct. And I think it's important to remember that fact as well because we've only ever seen, and, we, and I don't know how this woman has been the whole time. I don't know what she's been like. We've only seen what what Betty wanted us to see, right? Yeah. So, yes, I agree with you. I, I agree with you on, I think I think where we disagree is, and, and maybe it's just a maybe it's just a question of communication. Is I feel like you're saying mm, Diane's just a bad, terrible, awful person, and she sees terrible things everywhere, and it's all her fault. Mm, not quite. I mean, I know how it's why it sounds that way. Because um, that's what you're saying. I, <laughs> that's why it sounds. No, that way. I mean, no, no, it's not. Like what it is to me is it's more of like she has broken as a person. Not, it's not like I think oh she was always fundamentally some awful person and sees everything terribly and blames everybody. I think it's more of a story of her being broken by being in Hollywood and trying to go for these things and becoming very jaded. And I don't think she's a completely sadistic monster because she does feel immense guilt about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I, I, I still feel bad for her. Regardless. In other words, I think we are more closely aligned in her than you think we are, but I just think we're saying it differently. Maybe yeah. you're saying it better. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Because I, pretty I, hard that- to come onto a, to a definitive interpretation with the David Lynch movie. <laughs> no, for sure. But I think you are inter- I think what you just said, I totally agree with. Is my point. Yeah. Yeah. Which is this no, person and- who got wrapped up in this thing and got broken by it and feels like she's lost everything, her life, and she's gonna lash out at what she believes is and she's not and she's not right about this, by the way. I'm 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 very keen on people taking responsibility for their actions, but she's lashing out at what she believes is the result of of this failure, so to speak. Plus, she's lost this woman that she deeply cared about. Right, right. And that and that's another part of the aspect where I am a little less charitable with uh, Diane because I'm like, you could still just do something else. Like, Correct. Your life, Correct. it's not like they took away all your money and your destitute. It's like you could just do something else. Yeah. Like, yeah, maybe you're not going to be a fucking Hollywood star. You could still live a life. Yeah, I think, I think what it is so is... so much meaning to that. Yeah, I think what it is is she feels like it's not just her career and opportunity she's losing, but she's losing her her the love of her life in addition to her career. And not just her career, but opportunity, period. We know Adam's connected. We know his he is powerful. You're not... You're, your Hollywood days are done. You're done. Plus, you've lost right. the girl. So she's lost a ton <laughs> <laughs> so it sucks. Shouldn't kill people, but you've lost a ton. Shouldn't hire there people to go. kill people either. That's for sure. <laughs> that's no good. It's not like you're getting a divorce and you're like, oh, bummer, and I'm, but I'll be at work tomorrow. It's like no job and you're divorced. And oh, you can't work <laughs> in that field that you've loved your whole life. So yeah, you've, got a, you've got a major change coming to you. Indeed. But still shouldn't hire contract killers. <laughs> should still, we should still draw the line there. Definitely you fucked up. Okay. <laughs> 
And um, we see the, we kind of see the break and we see her in the, we see her in the diner mm-hmm. getting coffee, Pulling meeting him, Betty, by the way, the, the waitress. Yeah. So fucking, ooh. Brutal. She knows it. She's like looking around and seeing the pieces of, well, I, actually, I guess technically at this point, this is before she's had her dream, but this is, these are the pieces that filled Correct. her dream. Yeah. I wonder why she went with Betty. I bet she liked it. I bet you, like as far as just like it sounding like an old classic. I think so too. It has a so does Rita. They both have a fifty sound to them. Betty and Rita. Something with the appearance of more innocence, perhaps in both names. Totally, that's it. Camilla, that chick fucks. Right, (laughs) nothing innocent about that. Camilla's fucking. Camilla's a dick warrior. (laughs) A vulva slayer. But um, yeah, you sure you want to do this. When you see the blue key, it's done. Basically, is what we get here. That's it. I love her. What is it open? He just fucking laughs. Crazy man. And we go back to the alley. It's night. It's red. That's oh, so crazy. And we see this person clutching this box. We talked a lot about this at the beginning. Could this mm-hmm. be a representation of her worst fear come true? And I, I think maybe so. But what is her worst fear? The inability to to achieve the dream, yet have feeling like it's so close to you as represented by the box. That like it's something that you can hold, but you can't access. Correct. Like yeah. you're so close to it, you can you can touch it, but you just can't have it. Right, right. But do you do you still have a do you have a, an interpretation of who the homeless creature is? Nah, I think it's more metaphorical. Right. Yeah. More David. More Lynchian shit. I think here. <laughs> Yeah, this box has just now been tossed into a bag, a little bag with a fucking pop top still in there and dropped on the ground. Meaningless. Yeah. And then and out come the fucking Harryhausen claymation fucking old people. Oh, this is <laughs> fucking weird. These are the people from the airport. Yeah. Uh huh. So fucking creepy. Laughing at her. Just laugh, cackling. cackling. Cackling her all the way to the bed where she blows herself away. So fucking creepy man is this is this just a and we talked about this quite a bit is this the personification of what was what was what seemed like positive opportunity and encouragement to laughing at you you're not going to make it to oh, now now we are your guilty conscience sort of personified what, what do we have here yeah i mean like i was saying on my my first viewing i was kind of seeing them as they are her parents or parental figures, and she's n- almost now blaming them for you. You t- brought me here. <laughs> like, yeah, I, see, now, I don't get that. I don't get that at and, all. Maybe that's I, why yeah. you still feel like she's blaming everyone else. And no, what I'm about to say, like, I've, I've kind of moved away from that some. I, I, I never felt real solid on that idea. It was just kind of my first take on it. Um, but now, yeah, I'm not really sure. I mean, I, to be honest, I'm leaning more your way of like that they are just kind of the symbol of what seemed to be greeting and welcoming and was actually behind your back mocking you and laughing at you the entire time. Maybe it's the entire, maybe maybe they are the, the evil spirit of Hollywood, so to speak. Maybe they're the persona, for, <laughs> seriously. Maybe they're I, the I wor- believe you, I, but I just find it so odd that that, that is encompassed in like the most retiree Florida old couple looking people ever. But, ah, but, we are Hollywood. But maybe, maybe because maybe we're thinking about it too literally. Maybe it's because yeah. that is an old force. True. Yeah. Maybe that this is like 
that they have they have accessed a a time and a success and a power that is not accessible to you, and they are laughing <laughs> laughing away. Yeah, it's an old their force. Hill of it's, it's been doing it since these times. You know, I, I heard some of the I heard some of the stuff about oh, you know, there's the the woman I forget her freaking name, famous actress found you know so many days later, kind of like they have in this movie, and the woman that was you know uh, killed in the car accident and. In some of these homages to the '50s stuff, and I wonder, you know, is is are these old people representing that old time period? And it was all, and it's always been bad. And there, there was no, it was corrupt in the '50s as well. It was corrupt when these old people were young. It doesn't matter. Maybe they just mm-hmm. represent an old force that's always been there. I know that we're getting monster of the week here, but maybe they represent an old monster, so to speak, that has, you know, and just terrorized, terrorized, or corrupted, or or inflicted itself upon actor and actress forever since Hollywood's been doing its thing. And maybe showing them as, as older makes you feel like it's some sort of old force. Um, and, and, and like you said, the parent thing, there could be something there because perhaps they presented themselves as old and wise and helpful on that plane, right? Right. Yet, yet they weren't. Hollywood is old and wise. It's been there forever. Your dreams are there. And these, this couple just leads you <laughs> you think and they just laugh you behind your back and then they drive you to your death it is they are hollywood so to speak indeed just making shit up now yeah i mean i mean i like it i feel like it's actually a better a better take than my first take that's for sure by the way cool effect with the the gunshot in the way they the, decide the, to fill the room with smoke like the car crash yeah baby Ooh, nice job yes sir <laughs> Huh, smoke cool. filling the room just like the car crash between the, the two same of us thing we'll figure was, this out huh i didn't yeah. even catch that i just thought it was it was just being cool and surreal it looked awesome mm-hmm. but it does fill the entire frame and it is blue just Which, like that that yeah. opening car crash that one moment of the flash and then a pretty sad moment their faces superimposed over los angeles right and over the the creature the homeless mm. creature Indeed, but yeah, this dude—the ending is fucking sad. This movie is a fucking bummer. It's, it is. Honest. It is. It it's is really it is. goddamn sad. Yeah, no question. And also because the movie doesn't really show it, but we've talked about it already. Like Camilla's also dead. Like she was murdered. Correct. That that happened. They're both fucking dead. It's yep. just such a a tragic, awful like you know two people who just didn't understand one another one one more broken than the other and one maybe more callous than they realized and just explodes into this horrible ending i mean it's terrible yeah yeah man so sad Fuck. good movie though yeah it's fucking good man i dig it a lot let's do some yeah, listener comments good. and then get out of here hell yeah i have paul oh by the way we've waited long enough to say this normally we catch this up front this is a uh, a bounty yeah Indeed, it is a it is a guild bounty, and I put their little names in the thing, uh, in the YouTube description. But this is uh, this was bountied by Michael Birch, Paul Cernak, Jersey Mike, Felicia Harris, Patrick Kelly, Matthew Lewis, Joe Polcini, and Mike Rafus. So thanks to them, people, those people who put their dollars and cents together and bounty this a uh, hundred years ago. We're finally covering it. <laughs> we got there, guys. Thank you. Got there. And it was a great watch. I had, I had a, what a pleasure watching this movie, having never seen it before. 
Yeah, hell yeah. I'm glad to finally get this one under my belt because this is anytime I'm like, oh yeah, I really like David Lynch and I like this movie. That everybody's like, oh, have you seen Mulholland Drive? And I'm like, Ugh, no, yeah. <laughs> like an idiot. That's funny. So hell yeah, got there. All right. So uh, one of the bounties, Paul, but one of the bounties, Paul Sternick says, "Days finally come. Your review of Mulholland Drive. I can't believe Matthew hasn't seen it. I haven't either." Um, I finally got my best friend to watch it. I put it on. I told him we're going to watch this. You're going to be confused. You're going to get bored. You probably won't like it, but I guarantee you're going to be thinking about it for the next few weeks. I saw him again a month later and without being prompt, and he said, you know what? I was thinking about that movie for a long time. That was something, indeed. He says, I wish I could go back to my very first viewing. It was so unsettling, and I constantly felt like there were these big things that were happening in front of my eyes and I wasn't sure of. Even a typical shot, reverse shot in the diner was strange. And after studying it closely for a few seconds, I noticed that it was strange because the camera was just slightly wobbly. Yes, it was floating. Totally out of place for the type of shot that it was. We covered that in Ad nauseum. I remember thinking, Naomi Watts is a terrible actor. This is bad dialogue. What are people thinking when they revere this movie? And then a couple of minutes later, I thought, wait a minute, what if it's supposed to be bad? Why? I've seen it five times, and each subsequent viewing reveals a new insight and appreciation for the film. Anyway, I've written for a few. I've written a few times before, and you've always been so generous by responding. I enjoy your shows and enthusiasm for movies. I can't wait to hear your thoughts, Paul. And then he oh. attached uh, a commentary on the movie from Birth, Death, and Movies, but I did not have time to read it. It uh, it looked really long. It was super long. So yeah, I couldn't do it. Oh boy. But if you're interested, it's out there. I'm sure there are a lot of long essays about these movies. Yes, sir. About all of Lynch's movies. All right. I want to read one from Miss Danielle Cutta. Well, she was in the chat most of the night. Is she still there? She might be. She should go to bed, I'm though. I'm not sure. I don't want her. <laughs> Up super late. Got to keep night. your strength up, young lady. <laughs> she says, amazing film and my favorite one by Lynch. I've seen it a half dozen times and yet still only understand about 80% of it, which I suppose is on par with most of his movies. Moody and atmospheric, it's a sumptuous feast for the eyes that keeps you on your toes when it comes to the unfolding mystery. And Naomi Watts, all I can say is, wow, her breakout role, and she totally nailed it. Mm -hmm. This is one of those movies that even if you don't like David Lynch or for some reason don't like mystery and noir, you'll still find yourself leaning closer to the screen, eager to see what happens next. Side note, does anyone else jump every single fucking time the bum comes around the back of the restaurant, <laughs> even though you know it's coming because they're telling you what's about to happen? Because I sure as hell do. Indeed. <laughs> it got me good. I'll admit it. Yeah, man. All right. I have Matthew Lewis, another bank, another backer. Um, he says, I'm not going to waste all your time by selling you with my theories about every little detail. Don't worry. We covered that for two hours and 40 minutes, dude. Um, he says it makes fun debates, but it's not get to the core of why I was happy to drop some dollars on this. He says, for most films, I consider it to be a flaw when a first viewing leaves you unclear about what you just watched. It usually signals sloppy filmmaking. However, there are a handful of directors who man manipulate structure, visuals, and sound to absorb you into the world while leaving you both confused and fascinated. Lynch, Nolan, Aronofsky. He says, Lynch can often miss the mark, but he nailed it with Mulholland. He is the king of establishing a sense of dread while leading you into madness. His use of car headlights to emphasize the darkness beyond their reach. Nice. Lingering tracking shots from odd angles and distortion of common sounds are unmatched in building mood and tension. The reveal of the bum behind the diner takes place in broad daylight. We talked about that. He, it doesn't jump out or attack, but the setup of the entire scene makes its single, simple appearance the fuel of nightmares. Oh, yeah, and it doesn't hurt to have oh, yeah. Watson, Laura Herring. Goddamn, son. Indeed, Mr. Lewis, indeed. Hopefully a lot of those um, threads you uh, showed us there, we, we tugged on quite a bit, I would say. Indeed. Awesome. All Anyone right. else? 
Ah, I got one more from Jason Beneneski. I want to read. Jason. He said, I am, was, a huge Lynch fan back in my video store days. I probably watched Lost Highway 30 times and had long conversations about it with coworkers picking it apart and analyzing it. Mulholland I really liked, but it didn't capture me like some of his other work. However, the first time I saw it, I accidentally got a bit too high, and during the diner scene when they were talking about the nightmare they had, (laughs) I was so on edge. And then when they went outside, I could feel my heart pounding. When the homeless dude came around the corner, I sunk into the couch cushions and tried to disappear from life. So at least it has that funny story going for it. Right on, dude. Nice. Awesome. Bunch of druggos, all of you. Awesome. (laughs) So good. Well... Um, I really like this movie, man. Yeah. I really like it's good. it. It's really solid. Like at the end of the day, I still really liked it and talking about it more with you. I mean, there's so much here to appreciate. And I, 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 I feel like my own problem with it early on was just my own bias of being like, Ooh, is this, this, the kind of current style of Lynch that he's in now? And I'm not a big fan of, and totally forgetting that this movie's like almost 20 years old. This is still, you know, his, his style is always evolving and always changing like any good artist. But at the same time, this is to me still prime fucking Lynch. It's pretty inarguable. It is considered his greatest for a reason by a ton of people. Indeed. It is fucking solid, man. Yeah, it's I really great. Enjoyed it. I, um, I, I, I'm close to love it, to be honest with you. I'm close. Ooh. I'm close to it. What's holding you back, Dean? <sighs> because I feel like I am in emotional high right now after seeing it twice. And it would be easy to say I love it, so I'm tempering my I'm tempering my emotional reaction to the movie, having watched it twice in forty eight hours. Okay. Yeah. For me, it's a very, very solid like. Yeah. Not quite love, but I really like it. You like time crimes more than Mulholland Drive, just so you know. <laughs> Did I say I love that one? Yes. <laughs> yeah, fuck it. I love it. All right, fair enough. <laughs> I stand by it. <laughs> um, I'm gonna say I love Mulholland Drive. Done. All right. I'm not Beautiful. afraid. I love when you commit. I'm not afraid. I'm committing to a strong love on Mulholland Drive. <laughs> All right. Um, I don't know if I have any more things to say about it. I think I've, I've talked this Dude, one to death. Yeah. And, <laughs> this, uh, is a, this is a long one. It's a long episode, man. This is definitely one of our longer episodes. No question about it. But I had a lot of fun talking about it, going Hell into yeah. some of the interpretations, uh, you know, clarifying some of our communications and our interpretations to each other. It's a lot of fun, man. It was a good experiment. I enjoyed it. It was uh, it was work, and it was fun and challenging, and I Hell liked yeah. it. So, good on you to Michael Birch, Paul Cernak, Jersey Mike, Felicia Harris, Patrick Kelly, Matthew Lewis, Joe Bolgini, Mike Rafus. <laughs> you guys rock. Next time on the show, we are going to be covering Bullet from 1968, starring old Steve McQueen. So you do not want to miss that one. We'll be covering that live next Thursday, which would be, what, the 15th, if math serves? 8 plus 7, right? It's 15? No, 14th. So we'll be covering that on the 14th because it's the 8th now. All right. That's it. Um, We're going to get out of here. Matthew, do you want to tell these good people good night? Oh, indeed. If you ever run across an old person that you don't know, hand them a big old handful of raspberry jelly and a top hat and turn them into a kooky old person. Have a good night. Yeah, baby. And remember, if you can't get that feeling back anymore, just wail on that puss. Just whack the shit out of it. (laughs) 